Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, the long-awaited January 6th hearings begin tonight at 8 o'clock. You can catch them live here on NPR. To start today off, we're opening the lines to hear your thoughts on everything that's at stake, least of which is our country's ability to stave off the next attempted coup. Want to know, will you be watching and are you hopeful about what action might happen as a result of these hearings? Last night, Boston Public School Superintendent Brenda Caselius announced the district will once and for all lift its masking requirements for kids and teachers. Plus, a possible showdown between the state and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu over those said schools and why even hungry school kids can't get our state legislature to act fast. All that with former Education Secretary Paul Revel, And that's to come ahead. Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. <laughs> You're listening to 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. You want to get the Celtics thing out of your system so well, we just, can move you know, on? I, I, I had to stop watching in the third quarter. Yeah. I thought, oh, my God, they're going to blow it again. I had to really? I had to retire from the room, oh. but then I came back, and they had won, so it was great. Yeah, it was hard for me because, as you know, I always go to the early bird special. Four exactly. o'clock for dinner. like to be in bed tucked <laughs> in before the sun goes down, so it's a little late for me, but yeah. it was a pretty good game, I hear. Great game. It was a great game. So in any case, it's been over 500 days since insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol. Some arms, some waving Confederate flags, chanting, hang Mike Pence, and hopes they could stop the certification of Biden's victory. Tonight, the House January 6th committee, as you know, begins live televised hearings at 8. You can hear them live here at 89.7, along with NPR analysis. Uh, questions are simple. Are you going to watch? Do you have faith that they could lead to consequences for the people who facilitated an insurrection in this country? Or do you think there's nobody in this country whose mind is not already made up? Give us a call or a text at 877-301-8970. Or you could tweet us at BOS uh, Public uh, Radio. I'm really anxious. I'm not nervous about the content of the hearings These are competent people. I think there's a case that clearly can be made. Even that which we already know, forget what they say they've been holding back that they're going to release tonight, I'm sure is going to be really powerful and dramatic. I I just worry that everybody has their positions on everything baked in in this country and no amount of facts, even mountain high, about an insurrection is going to change anybody's mind. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't know either if it's going to change anybody's mind, but I do think it's, it's, it's really important to watch these things, to witness um, what came very close to a coup in the United States of yeah, America. I agree. And uh, what undermined what has always been things that the rest of the world looked at the United States with in amazement, which is a peaceful transfer of power. You know, talk about that baked-in thing. Uh, reportedly, I don't know if it's going to happen tonight or maybe next week during the daytime hearings, which we will also bring to you live, is apparently there's going to be video of uh, the long test, some of the long testimony that Jared Kushner gave, apparently giving up a sinking ship before yes, this I happened. Loved it. If he says anything close to 
Uh, we knew that the president, meaning Trump, my father-in-law, lost the election. Does that have the most loyal, important aid to Trump? Again, I have no idea if he's going to say this, but the intimation from the stuff we've all read in the last 36 hours is that Ivanka and Jared uh, Trump and Jared Kushner essentially packed up and said, what was his well, line? Let's go to line, Miami yeah, or the something? the line is the morning after the election, he wakes up Ivanka and says, we're going to Miami. All oh, right, it was the morning after? I forgot, even <laughs> the before the final the results, we're going to go to results were in for he, Biden, he, right? He knew that they would not be welcomed yeah. back in New York because uh, they horrified most of the friends in their social circles in New York, which is a very democratic uh, city. And so he figured they'd go to Miami. But he right away gave up the ship on the uh, on the election and began to look at his business interests moving forward uh, post the election and post being the son-in-law of the president of the United States. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting what he says and what uh, she says, because don't forget, um, there were all these people that were friends of the president, you know, including their media friends, that were urging him to stop this January 6th uh, riot and, and, and get rid of these. Uh, what are you laughing at? I'm laughing at it because, you know, th- this whole, the, the whole thing, the, the, you know, the, the indignation or the shock or so, I don't even know what the right word is that Fox News is not carrying this. You just mentioned Laura Ingram, one of their stars is texting whoever right. it was saying, if he doesn't stop this, he's going to destroy his legacy. Obviously, they're not going to run hearings in which they're going to be made to look like fools in their own words. You know, so we want to know. Well, we liars, are hoping we liars. really need some. Exactly. We really need some buttressing here. Usually we try to buttress you when you're feeling I, I'm I, I'm really looking forward to this, but I'm really feeling gloomy about what impact uh, uh overwhelming evidence, I think, is going to have about uh, this attempted insurrection. And obviously, the infer- for those of a certain age, we all remember his first name was Howard Baker, right? From Tennessee, yes. Senator Baker, the yes. Republican. What did the president know? No, and and when, when did he, he know, know it? it? Oh, that was a great I mean, that obviously, I assume, is going to be repeated by somebody. Now, that's what, right, as Margaret well, said, Watergate. That's a pre- Can they directly tie Donald Trump to the insurrectionists? And if they can... Will people still not care that the president of the United States was helping to direct or coordinate or approve or 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 something? Do you read the story when I was on vacation the last few days? I'm sorry to spill have this all spill out that some aide to Trump is saying that he was okay with Mike Pence being hanged if if that's what happened. I mean, this is just a, a or whatever that variation <laughs> on that theme was. It is unbelievable. And so my hope is that you might know, really have confidence in tonight, by the way, is uh, Liz Cheney. Oh, you know, and I was just she- thinking when we were talking before about Liz Cheney before the show. Yeah. I was just thinking, imagine Liz Cheney as your mother in your teen years. Man, you wouldn't be able to get away with the thing, <laughs> would you? I mean, you know, she is just just the facts, ma'am. You know, deadpan. She's a woman of great. I, I disagree with her on everything politically. We always have to say that regarding Liz Cheney. I think Liz Cheney might be even a climate change denier. She's certainly not doing much to help things there out in Wyoming. But but she is really courageous in this regard. Well, also, I, I, despite the fact that Donald Trump calls her a rhino, Republican in name only. By the way, a rhino. Who do you know? What percentage? Of the time she voted with Trump when Trump was president, Something like ninety percent, ninety three percent. She's a rhino, Republican yeah, a rhino. name only. Despite that, 
She, I think, comes in with credentials in this thing that might be able to break some minds open. And it sounds like when you read about this that Jamie Raskin, who is terrific, and Liz, a former constitutional law professor, obviously was on the one of the impeachment committees, and his son, he lost his son in the middle of this, which is – remember his line – I lost my son. I'm not about to lose my country at the beginning yes. of the second impeachment. I mean, and, oh he my was, God. and he was there with his daughter uh, after his son had mm-hmm. taken his own life. On January 6th, they were huddled in fear yeah. up there with his uh, surviving daughter. The whole thing is really, um, you know, I, I got a text yesterday from uh, Tony from Lemonster wondering why Marjorie's laughing all the time, even on serious matters. No. I'll tell you why, Tony, because either I laugh or, or I cry. cry. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I do, uh, I'm a big believer in gallows humor, and it's come to that, that it's one or the other with, with a lot of what's going on in the United States of America. Anyway, let's start with Mary in Rhode Island. Hi, Mary. Hello, Mary. Good morning. Hi. Um, I just wanted to, I'm thinking about the fact that the people who most need to see this tonight are people who watch Fox News, and they won't be seeing it. So we continue to preach to the choir. It's a problem. I mean, you're totally right. It's not just Fox News. It's the Facebook feeds that come off of this. It's conservative talk radio, how they handle this. You know, Ben Shapiro, who's a popular uh, popular on Facebook, you know, to see what he says, you know, Joe Rogan, all these people. I think it's a you're right, Mary. Well, except you're right to an extent. It, on a good night, Fox News averages what two and a half to three million viewers. This is going to be on every broadcast nation, and a lot of people still watch broadcast television. Mm-hmm. It's going to be on CNN and MSNBC. Yep. Yep. I would argue, Mary, and I hate to be positive about anything in the middle of this. The vast majority of America who has a TV on, which is practically everybody at night. It, They are going to see this. It's not going to be – it's going to be the outliers who believe everything Trump says and disbelieve every criticism of his behavior who won't be watching. I'm more worried about the middle, Uh, people who are independents, who are – you know, open-minded or focused right now on things like inflation and gas prices and whatever. Hopefully they can be jarred into – some level of recognition about an attempt to overthrow our democracy. So I hope you're wrong, and I hope I'm right. Mary, thank you for the call. We appreciate it. We also have to hope, Jim, that we see very little of our uh, politicians. I know we're going to have... What do you mean? Well, because we don't don't want to see... What we do at these usual hearings, these grandstanding pause. Oh, they're not going to let that. I hope they're not. You mean I hope. Endless, boring speeches. We I already hope. know. I'm sure you've all heard this. This Capitol cop police officer, Caroline Edwards, she yep. suffered this traumatic brain Concussion. injury. Yeah. Is going to testify. And this guy, this filmmaker, and I'm not sure I can pronounce his last name, Nick Quisted, who was embedded yeah. with members of uh, the Proud Boys. He's going to uh, testify. I'm not quite clear. I know that the chief of staff, Mark Short, for Pence gave a lot of testimony, as did one of his counsels, I think. I don't quite understand why Pence has not been requested so far uh, uh, to be part of this in light of the fact that there was an effort to execute Mike Pence (laughs) as part of this because he had the audacity to do what his constitutional duty was, which was – to uh, uh, certify the election results, 877-301-8970 by text or call Alan and Whalen. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Hi. Hi. So um, just to show you how high there, to show you how far apart I think we are, that there was a recent poll done, I read a couple of days ago, that and I believe the number, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is 44% of the Republicans 
believe that we should live with mass death. We should put up uh, yeah. with the gun laws as they are. Have you heard that? Is that something that you've heard also? Well, the, the meaning that the, the, the if the price of protecting their Second Amendment rights is death, yes. There are also a significant but, number of a, a bare majority of Republicans who believe a civil war is on our future. A, a minority, but a significant number who think political assassinations are okay in uh, 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 if the country's not going in the right direction. It, this did is. You, did you hear, Alan, what uh, Senator Thune from South Dakota oh my God. was talking about how, you know, we need these assault weapons because people have to go out and they have to shoot things like. The critters. The, the critters, feral pigs, and some little animal. I forget what the animal is called. What was the thing? Oh, prairie dogs mm-hmm. that weigh between one and three pounds and are about 12 to 16 inches long. That's why we need these assault weapons. And as other people have pointed out, you need a license to hunt in a lot of places, right? So it's incredible that... Um, well, have you seen uh, the new ad from March for Our Lives? Yes, it's in the there. contrast You was, don't need a license to kill them, meaning the kids. Yes. You do need a license, license to, to kill, kill a, the Alan, prairie dogs. Alan, where were you going with that polling uh, stuff? Where was that taking you? Well, it's just that I was thinking that how, how much debate could I have with somebody where they could actually convince me to take the position that Americans should live with mass death with all of these shootings? in lieu of not changing the gun laws, that I couldn't possibly take that position, then that's how far apart I feel from the other side. I'm afraid you're, I I mean, I share your pessimism about the state of this country, and I hope I'm going to be proven to be wrong if there's an effective presentation tonight and next week. Thanks for the call, Alan. It is worth pointing out, though, that um, the vast majority of Americans do want sensible gun control, as we always say, including gun owners, including NRA members. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the politicians here that are really disgusting. By the way, one of the people who's been most relentless for the longest period of time on this is with us at the library tomorrow, John Rosenthal from Stop Paying Gun Violence. I don't think you want to miss it. Here's one honest texter, Marjorie. Mm-hmm. At least the hearings are coming on after Jeopardy. So <laughs> I think that's... that's <laughs> Well, Paul Wister says also the hearings would be like a new TV series that got canceled after six episodes, leaving the viewer disappointed. The DOJ won't do a thing. Trump will be president again, and we will finally be brought down by our own stupidity. Time to learn Chinese. Ishmael, here in Randolph. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the first January 6th hearing tonight at 8 o'clock. Welcome. Uh, hello. Good morning. Yes. Uh, first time uh, caller. Oh, thank you I'm very much. Thank you. Yeah, I listen to you guys almost every day. So thank you. Happy that I finally got through. Yeah, so I I just don't think that it's going to change anybody's minds. I think you know if you see if you saw the insurrection back on January sixth and that didn't change your mind, nothing that you hear tonight is going to change That's your a good mind. Point. What I'm what I'm hoping will happen is that um, the DOJ watches this. And this yeah. is a little bit of more pressure on the DOJ to act on this. And um, uh, so they can start indicting, you know, other co-conspirators, you know, and then work up through the chain. But uh, as far as, you know, changing people's minds, it's not going to, to do anything. It might change one or two, but uh, as far as... You know, Ishmael, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you yeah. raised the Department of Justice issue. And let me paraphrase someone who's high profile, and I can't remember who it was, who tweeted the other day after the Justice Department decided uh, decided to, under Merrick Garland, to indict one person 
who was found in contempt of the committee by refusing to testify and not charge the other two. And the tweet was something like, are you kidding me? You think Merrick Garland is going to indict the president of the United States for leading an insurrection while he won't indict two uh, uh, staffers for refusing to testify in front of Congress for contempt? So I have to say we may be surprised, Ishmael, but I I think this is a very timid Justice Department attorney general. And I worry that no matter what is referred to him at the end of this, that uh, Donald Trump wins uh, Yet again, and his people. Ishmael, thanks for your you know, first call. We well, hope it's another one soon. Sorry. understand about Merrick Garland. I mean, he seems like a good man. We know he's moderate. We obviously know he's timid. But why does he think this is the right thing to do when you have these very high-profile cases? You know, you, you run a red light. you got to pay the, 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 the piper, right? Yep. So why does he think it's a good know. thing to let people break laws, flout laws, ignore laws? We're supposed to be, as we've said since Nixon's time and or that a government of laws, not of men. Why does he think that's wise? To me, it's just the opposite. I, I, it, it I have no I have kind of a lawlessness. No idea. I have no idea. Chris, Chris from Gloucester. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm more optimistic than you. Great. Guys. Oh, good. <laughs> now we may not change minds, but we'll harden the resolve. I uh, I think that Merrick Garland is going to wait till after the hearings, and once he indicts, um, it doesn't even have to be Trump. That whole narrative is going to flip because DOJ is not subject to polls or Fox News. And I also believe the case in Georgia is going to get Trump, too. And I think uh, today is Trump's last day uh, riding high. That that wave is going to crash. You know, uh, and I'm really confident of that. Uh, Chris, I hope you're right. By the way, speaking of the and when Chris mentions Georgia, he's talking about the infamous call we've all heard to Secretary of State Raffensperger. Yeah. Raffensperger is rumored to be testifying yes. at the hearing someday next week. And by the way, I believe he won his primary. He did, did he not? Mm-hmm. Despite an anti a pro Trump person. Uh, challenging him, just like a, a Purdue, Senator Purdue, challenged and got crushed. He Purdue was the pro-Trump uh, candidate, was crushed by the incumbent governor, uh, Kemp. Chris, I, I like what you had to say, and I hope we wake up tomorrow and you are right and we are wrong. Thanks so much for your call. Mark has got a quick po- uh, Mark from Holden has a quick point before the break, Jim. What is it? I just said that Tony from Lemonster is wondering why I sometimes laugh yeah. at serious stuff. And I said because I'd rather laugh than cry. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of Gallo's humor. Mm-hmm. Mark points out that Mike Pence is not a big fan of Gallo's humor. Oh, that's good. That's... Are we allowed <laughs> to laugh at that? I think that... I'm laughing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark from Holden. Okay, we're talking about the televised hearings, January, uh, January 6th uh, insurrection attempt, coup attempt. They're going to be on tonight at 8. We're taking your thoughts about that. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. You can call us or text us at 877-301-8970. Tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browning and Marjorie and we're obviously talking about the hearings that start tonight at 8 o'clock, the January 6th hearings. They'll be televised on every station except Fox News. If you're not in front of a TV, NPR will be providing live uh, coverage of it as well as analysis. Here's a wonderful point and a point we should be embarrassed we didn't make. Will from Arlington 
text, agree with your summation and concerns about the hearings, but, and then the capital letters, the key point is not that it happened, but that it is ongoing. They continue Great to undermine point. democracy. January 6th was just practice. That is a really important point. You know, uh, was it uh, 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 David Brooks who wrote this point? Uh, somebody in the New York Times wrote the piece. I think it was him today or yesterday saying that's what they got to focus on. Obviously, they have to tell the story about January 6th, but they also have to tell the story. This was not a one and done, as Will from Arlington is suggesting. And I'm, no. I'm really glad you made that point, Will, which, again, we should have made. 877-301-8970 to text or to call. The claim before was that the election's false claim was that the election was rigged in 2020. Mm -hmm. The election looks like it is going to be rigged in 2022 at the rate we're going, um, electing secretaries of states who would would undermine the will of the voters. Well, but the good news is they don't even if they win elections, which would not be good news, they don't serve for the 2022 elections. They're installed in the 2022 elections to cook the books come 2024, right? That's, that's, yeah. yeah, that's absolutely I mean, I don't know right. if that's Cindy- good news that corrupt politicians can't uh, corrupt the system for two years. They have to wait until they're elected to do the corrupting. So that's my that's my more optimistic note because another texter said, enough with the cynicism you're playing into there. But I, I mean, I, it's just, this is a country okay. divided on everything. Cindy I'm and Stone. I'm to be upbeat now. We are? Yes. Who is? Well, I will. I'll okay, try. good. Cindy and Stoughton. It's a new us. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. I finally got through. Thanks. Um, I I have some hope about the hearings. I'm not uh, um, really positive, but I do hope they have stuff that we don't know. I think they and will. Yes. My one point, though, is that if these politicians, Republicans, and the Supreme Court can't visually see the violence, can't say Pence was they wanted to hang Pence, then why the taxpayers? Why should we pay for any security for them? Obviously, violence is not that big of a problem for them. Well, they uh, can't visualize it. we got it. I, I hope you know, you're not totally serious. I mean, we have having a gunman, you know, stalking uh, Kavanaugh's uh, Justice Kavanaugh's that house was really is not a good thing. But you know what's interesting, by the way, and uh, thank you for the call. Uh, there was, I believe, a hundred and nothing vote to provide extra security to members of the Supreme Court, which is what it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the federal marshals refused to provide security to Rachel Rollins right. when she received death threats that were no one was contesting that there were death threats and uh, they apparently didn't think that was important enough to take care of her either okay my 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 brief moment of optimism is ruined by sheila from north attleboro who says my right-wing cousins in haverhill are calling the insurrection hearings a wait for it witch hunt well, did you read the line from this coach for the – I don't know what the name yes. of the Washington football team is now. I never now. heard of them before. Uh, well, the, no, they the have a new name. I, oh, Commanders is what it is. The new co- okay. This guy, Jack Del Rio, yeah. called January 6th in a tweet a dust-up. A dust-up. And up. obviously after he did it, he took a lot of heat and his bosses <laughs> told him he had to go apologize. I mean, can you get any dumber? Really? I mean, can you get any dumber? The, you know, the people – these cops – Every single one of the people who were covering up for the insurrectionists in Trump, every one of them talks about how much they love the police and how important it is to have a fortified, expanded police. Police officers were executed 
others were traumatized in ways see them interviewed now a year and a half later on television yeah, they're still traumatized in yeah. ways that are unbelievable this caroline edwards is going to testify tonight about her brain injury they're such frauds it is unbelievable steve from watertown thank you for calling hey steve what's up hi how you guys doing excellent thank this you. is all so unbelievable hey it's so unbelievable it's back when it app when it happened I texted my Republican brother who lives in Florida, mm-hmm. who I didn't really have a great relationship with to begin with, yeah. just to get just to try to get his viewpoint on this. And the couple of texts we had turned into about 30 emails back and forth, you know, uh, kind of like a volley of disagreements. OK, mm-hmm. yeah. And. And it, it, it just wound up be, being like, okay, I'm never going to talk to my brother ever again. Now, I'm definitely going to be watching these hearings, and I'm wondering if after I see them or if he sees them, I'm wondering if I should bother con- trying to contact him again. And, well, and, and my other question is, you said the hearings are going to be going into next week. Do you yes. know how long they're lasting? I think my understanding is there's six, six? sections, yeah. even though that hasn't been confirmed. There are reportedly going to be three daytime, three to four daytime hearings next week. Whatever there are, we'll bring them. But my understanding is the first tonight and the last, with no date, will be prime time, and the in between three or four will be during the day. But Steve, it, oddly, they have not published a schedule. I think Monday they've agreed they'll be on, but that's about it, Steve. Steve, I'm curious, what does your brother think about January 6th? Does he think it was a dust up or something mm-hmm. like that, too? You know, he, he he disagreed with it happening, and but uh-huh. in our conversations, he spent more time bashing Joe Biden, yeah, instead of instead of um, you know uh, you know disagreeing with with the whole attack, yeah, and you know and he, he and he 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 called. We used to live in Cambridge, and he he he, he referred to Cambridge as. Cambridgestan at one point. He was just like pulling out, pulling out all these ridiculous, absurd insults, you know? Anyway. Well, I would, I I know you're not asking, well, maybe you were asking for, I'd give him a buzz tomorrow just to see and uh, uh, let us know after you uh, converse with your brother, whether or not tonight uh, moved him at all. Steve, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Again, I, I, get why people get swept up in this like Alice in Wonderland world. It's just like if you cover a trial and you have a really good lawyer arguing a ridiculous point for a clearly defend guilty defendant, you can see how the jury gets swept up in it. You know, they can invoke people's patriotism or their manhood or something like that. And you look at somebody like Tucker Carlson, he's good at what he does. You can find yourself in the middle of a circuit circuitous argument that he makes and think, well, it doesn't sound that, that crazy. And I think that's exactly what happens. Well, I, I, I buy that part. What I don't buy is I don't know how a caring, smart, still breathing human being could watch video of January 6th, which I believe, is it fair to say that every single American, no matter what their politics, saw a video of January 6th, if they didn't see it live, video. It is hard for me to believe that there are people on this planet, in this United States, that could see that 
and then could then have Tucker Carlson convince. By the way, you're right, obviously, it's that it's people, a big nothing. It's, it's, they're not really Trump people. Antifa. They're Antifa people. Right, it's a false probably, flag. You're probably, you're probably they're crisis okay. actors. It was all drummed up. You're you know, Joe right. Biden's minions were out there in the middle of the mall or something Can I, like can I say, let me say, because we were criticized correctly for being far too negative about this. No. I'm going to make a positive statement. Okay. This is not a joke. This is serious. Even if this leads to no consequences for the the uh, uh, advancers and supporters and initiators of this insurrection or attempted insurrection, and even if it leads to nobody changing their mind about the state of democracy in this country, it is important for the history of this country that there be a clear and convincing Absolutely. record made of the horror leading up to that day, of that day, and the horror that continues after, as that texter Will said a few minutes ago. So if that's the only result out of this, it can't be it'll the only be important. Result. It can't be the only result. Merrick Garland has to indict people. Even if he can't get convictions, he has to indict people. It's the same thing as the Catholic scandal with the sex abuse from years ago. Card- Cardinal Law should have been indicted. By Tom Riley. By Tom Riley. General. Marjorie I, said I it at the time. I was a fan of Tom Riley, but I think it was a huge mistake. And we can't, or we, but the people that have the power that we don't cannot let the, the Department of Justice do nothing about this. They Bob, can't. Bob and Pembroke, speaking of Merrick Garland, wants to talk about the Attorney General. Hey there, Bob. Yeah, Marjorie, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is a two-step process, right? We'll have the hearings, and then there has to be some action, hopefully after that, and it would, it would involve Garland. And I've felt for a long time that he's the wrong guy for the job. And, yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I think it's time for Biden to make a decision about whether this is the right Right person for the attorney general position. Yeah, but Bob, you know what the problem with that is? Is the one thing that Biden, not one thing, a a thing that Biden has done well is saying, unlike uh, the prior administration where uh, uh, Attorney General Barr was essentially Trump's personal lawyer, that he would stay out of this. The message out of that is, I don't like the fact that you haven't been tough enough on Trump and his people. So, you know, emotionally I'm with you, but I think it would be a political Disaster. Well, it has to be behind the but, scenes, Jim. Some offer he can't refuse. You like what? I mean? Well, I'm not talking, obviously, about the mob, but I'm talking about there has to be enormous political pressure brought to bear on, on Merrick Garland to do something because it's, it's, it's almost a travesty, right? How about the new uh, uh, district attorney in New York that essentially allowed the grand jury That's to dissolve travesty. when his lead prosecutors brought in uh, to prosecute Trump himself? said there was a, a case to be made. And as I've said to you repeatedly, do you think that prosecutor, that DA, would have been elected if he had nope. said during the campaign, I'm going to dissolve the grand jury investigating the behavior of uh, the former president of the United States? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. In any case, but we're going to talk about January 6th with a number of our guests today. We're obviously going to talk to you about it tomorrow. The only thing I would urge, and by the way, a lot of texters, and I'm sorry to mention this, a lot of texters said, uh, most recent of them is Mary from uh, Mansfield, all teachers should make all high school students watch this tonight. I am with her. Let it be an assignment. Let every young kid see an analysis of what's going on with our democracy tonight at 8 o'clock. Okay, uh, coming up, uh, last night the Boston Public Schools became one of the last districts in the Commonwealth to lift its mask mandate. Uh, Meanwhile, there's a potential showdown between the state and uh, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu over how the Boston schools should be run. We're going to get this full story on this and other education issues with our secretary, the former secretary of education, Paul Revel. He's next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Uh, Jim Brody and Marjorie again. Reminder, we are live at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. Paul Revels joining us in studio in Brighton. Well, one, only one of us is in the studio. So That's right. He's I'm not home, joining Jim. both of us. How's the cake going? How's it done? I'm baking away. Taking it out of the oven at noon? (laughs) So Paul is the former education secretary from Massachusetts who cared enough to show up at the studio, even though Marjorie didn't. He's not, did I say that? He's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book is co-authored with Lynn Sachs. It's called A Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Welcome to the studio, Paul Revel. Nice to see you. It's good to be here, Jim and Marjorie. Hello from a distance. Good luck with the cake. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm I'll stop the by baker. for a slice. That woman oh, yeah. can really <laughs> bake, let me tell you. So so we always make a big deal in Boston, uh, and this, certainly the Globe does, and I guess it, it, educators do, about the change in the guard at the presidency of Harvard. Larry Bacow has announced he's going to step down. Um, I guess it's it's obviously a big deal for Harvard, but I, I never see the it's impact. The most important school in the world. I know. What are you talking well, about? Well, <laughs> I don't. I guess I don't see the impact of Larry Bacow on the bigger world. I don't see it on the previous um, Drew Faust that used to be the head of Harvard. But maybe I'm just missing something. So, but he's leaving anyway. Good. Has he been a good guy? Of course, you worked there, so I suppose you would say he has oh my been. Gosh. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, I think there 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 are probably people who don't feel that way. But I do feel that way. I think I think he's been a good president. I you know I sympathize with him as I sympathize with school superintendents and any kind of public leaders. And after all, if you head up Harvard, you're a public leader. To lead in these times, not just COVID, but COVID has been overwhelming and a total preoccupation that gets in the way of, for example, the national platform you're talking about. But to lead in these divisive political times, I mean, Larry's inherited one controversy after another from the moment he arrived in office. And just when he was getting on top of those, you know, he was overwhelmed by the um, by, by COVID, but nonetheless did a lot of good things. I mean, you know, the uh, well, uh, slavery report at the end. Is well, the slavery report. He, he's did a lot on climate kinds of issues. Yep. He stood up for international students and international scholars. You know, he's made progress on doing a better job on Harvard's expansion into um, into Alston. He's got the quantum initiative that he did. He's, you know, he's dealt with all these controversies. And meanwhile, he stewarded the endowment going up by 40 percent. And he's just been, um, I, I think, a very stable hand and a very agreeable, collaborative kind of leader that uh, uh, has made people at Harvard feel good and appreciated during a very difficult time. So I salute him. I think he, you know, he's been there four years. He's going to have a fifth year. And um, he you know, was coming at the end of a long, distinguished career. He didn't have to come in and do this. Uh, he could easily have retired before this happened. And so I think he's given good service to the university and to <clears throat> the community. But I guess what I'm wondering, though, and, and maybe I was being too flip when I asked the question before Paul Revel, does the president of Harvard have an impact beyond Harvard? I mean, is he the person that's sort of setting some kind of standard because it's Harvard? Or is it just important. Can I answer that rather than Paul? Yeah, go ahead. I think, and we've had this discussion on air and off air about Harvard presidents, not just Larry Bacow. I think from what I know at arm's length, what he did intra-Harvard is to be commended. And a lot of those things spill out beyond like the slavery thing, for example. The place where I think Marjorie is going, I would argue the president of Harvard has the single most important bully pulpit on education in the world, not in the United States, not in Cambridge, in the world. And my problem with the last few Harvard presidents is they haven't used it. 
And when the education system is in crisis, like we discuss with you every couple of weeks, Paul Revel, I think it's a missed opportunity uh, uh, when that forum is not used. Am I am I being unfair? I think it's I think it's a, a totally fair point of view. I, I I just think it it you know leadership depends on on not only leadership qualities but the moment in history, and the moment in history I would argue uh, hasn't been ripe just lately mm-hmm. given COVID and given the political divisiveness where there is no consensus, there's no sense of national emergency in education, there's no sense that this is a time for transformative change, even though many of us believe that way. Could he have done more on that vein? Yeah, I think probably so. He started off with a very strong push on education and doing a national tour, uh, you know, relative to K-12 education. Uh, At the same time, it's totally understandable that he he became preoccupied with a bunch of other things. Well, also, the one thing we should say before leaving the topic, I think the a very significant thing when they pick a successor. Would you not agree the likelihood of having the first person of color uh, in charge of the world's greatest university is extremely high? Would you not? Well, I would think uh, any search committee that's working on this would would have to take that into account. That would be a serious consideration and something that they'd, they'd care about. We're talking to Paul Revel, former Secretary of Education. He is now at Harvard. So, <clears throat> Paul, we've been talking to you for a long time about uh, the state possibly uh, putting the Boston Public Schools in receivership. What I've been reading lately is that uh, there seems to be kind of a, uh, at least from the state's perspective, a criticism that Michelle Wu is not moving quickly enough with enough urgency, that she's not... Uh, for example, allowing an independent auditor to go to the central office of the Boston Public Schools, where there seems to be some cooking of the books in terms of graduation rates and what's really going on with um, English language learners, et cetera. So is that a, is that a fair characterization that that he wants more than she's willing to give? Well, I, I think they're in the midst of uh, some you know, fairly difficult negotiations right now, and I think both sides have to give some thought to what they're ready to give. Uh, I think the, the commissioner deftly uh, sort of engineered a crisis moment in which it, um, it, there, there appeared to be an imminent threat that the system was going to be taken over. Incidentally, it's not at all clear he had the bo- votes on the Board of Education oh, really? to do that. Uh, but he he put pressure on the system to sign an agreement that was delivered several days before that board meeting, um, and they balked because it was pretty much a compliance agreement rather than, as I argued in the Boston Globe, um, I think they should have been seeking a, a kind of imaginative partnership where you had some features and facets of um, state takeover that applied to particularly problematic areas in the school system, like transportation, like special education, English language learners, and data and things of that nature, and have the state assume some special authority in there. Give a new superintendent the relief and the cover of a state mandate, for example, to close buildings, because we've got way too much capacity, um, excess seating capacity, but yet it's impossible to close schools. Rethink what we're doing on busing, this madness of a kind of musical a game of musical chairs and busing kids all over the city to try and find quality education when we ought to have it in every neighborhood. Yeah, I, can I, I have an observation about this and then a question for you. The observation is, uh, you won't remember this, uh, Marjorie, I don't think, but you uh, asked a fairly critical question of Mayor Wu a couple of months ago. Uh, saying, yeah, saying something like, you know, one of the problems in the past, and I'm paraphrasing what you said, Mayor, 
is that mayors have often become micromanagers of education. Yes. And I assumed her answer was going to be like, well, you're not going to see that here. She essentially said to you, damn right, without those words, not that I'm going to be a micromanager, but when there's a crisis like this in our public schools, I, as mayor, intend to be intimately involved. So I think for those who say she's got to be the education mayor, at least seemed to me she was saying to me, you, I would be. But the, se- the second thing that is troubling me, and I want you to disabuse me of this, uh, Paula, if I'm overreacting, when I was reading the Globe story on what the state was looking for through Riley, it seemed that part of it was the elected mayor of Boston essentially reporting to the commissioner of education for the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, what she called patronizing. Well, oh, she, oh, I missed that. Then yeah. uh, my, I, I, that really made me uncomfortable. Was I wrong to no, feel no, uncomfortable? No, no, I, I think you're right. And I think the, the mayor resisted that. And I, I think that's why there's a certain sense in which you know, the state is issuing what, what essentially amounts to a set of compliance agreements. Meaning what does that mean? It, it means, okay, here's what you have to do. Here's what oh, you ha- okay. when you okay. have to I do see. it by, okay. and here's how you're going to report to me on what you get done. Rather than, rather than proffering a partnership, in other words, here's what we're going to do to help you solve this problem. We'll use some of our authority, some of our expertise, some of our resources, some of our capacity to solve the problem in special education or in English language learners. And I, there, to my mind, there hasn't been enough of that give and take or true partnership spirit. You know, there hasn't been enough imagination applied to this agreement to just simply make it nuts and bolts accepting the legacy systems, in other words, accepting where we are in buildings Mm -hmm. and just play with that, accept where we are in transportation and just do better at it. This was a moment for transformative change. To your first point, Jim, I think the mayor, particularly at a moment like this when, you know, she has a lame duck superintendent who's on her way out and deserves credit for the things that she achieved, but she's not an authority right now. So the mayor is the de facto leader of the school system for the moment. Uh, my my involvement with her, to the, uh, to the extent that I've discussed education with her, indicates to me that she's a thoughtful leader, but she isn't somebody who who uh, suggests that she knows how to get the job done. She doesn't want to go into the mm-hmm. engine room and tweak the uh, the uh, the furnace. She wants to hire somebody who she can trust, and she's making progress. She said she'd get there, and as I understand it. Uh, you know they're going to be ready to announce some finalists shortly, and they're they're on schedule toward announcing a superintendent. She wants a partner, and uh, we'll see how she partners with that person. I'll be surprised if she's a micromanager. But you know what, what's great about what you said, Paul, giving giving the mayor some cover because I think what's happened previously in Boston, as you say, the enrollment is 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 way down. There's buildings that don't they can consolidate these buildings instead of paying for all these buildings, but you try to do that. And the parents, understandably, I get it. I'd be beside myself too or in an uproar. They don't want to lose the school that their kid has gone to for three years or five years, whatever it is. <clears throat> but unfortunately, you've got to do that. And mayors buckle because of they don't want to, you know, get the, the, the uh, not this mayor it hasn't happened to her yet, but previous mayors because they don't want to upset a people. Or the same thing with changing the times when school begins and all that. So Absolutely. that's where I yeah. think it would be great what you said. They could say, hey, listen, this is what the state mm-hmm. says. This is what's going to happen so that they can be more realistic. Um, and, and as you point out, the busing thing is 10% of their budget. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of money that's getting spent on that, uh, over $100 million. And I think, incidentally, if you were to do that, if you were to make an arrangement that created some areas in which you now had sort of state cover to do some of the hard things yes. on busing and, and uh, you know, on, on closing buildings and things of that nature, it would make it a more attractive job for an incoming superintendent. I, I spent the last weekend at a conference out in Los Angeles about the imperiled condition of the superintendency. You know, we've gone to a 25% attrition rate That's in superintendents incredible. now, up from about 13%, and it's higher in urban areas. And we're trying to attract someone to come in and take a job, which most people would say, what, are you crazy to take this kind of job? Because it's a, sort of a no-win uh, situation on all these fronts. I mean, uh, Marjorie, you pointed out the, the, uh, the school start times. You know, you, you try and make a change as simple as that and you can't carry it off yeah. because you don't have the constituency for making any changes. So to make change in this kind of context, you need outside help and authority and now's the opportunity to get it. So I hope they push this agreement on both sides to be broader, to be bolder, to be more imaginative and to be more helpful to a new superintendent coming in. Just one last thing about this. When you talk about the increase in the attrition rate among superintendents, Why? Because everything's controversial, and okay. uh, and when you make a decision, no matter what you decide, it's like one long snow day. Used to be, you know, <laughs> when you decide whether to to open school or close school in the face of a snowstorm, no matter what you decided, you're parents wrong. were going to be furious. Yeah. You're putting my kids at risk or you're forcing me to hire daycare for the day and you're upsetting my work. Well, it's like one long snow day now, yeah. no matter what you do. And it's not only that you're wrong, but they come at you with just such ferocity and, uh, and ad hominem attacks and uh, after you and after your family. I was at an event in Cambridge last night where... Oh, um, the Cambridge Equity deal? Yeah, the Cambridge Equity event, and the superintendent had to be in, escorted by police to her car after the event. We had a gentleman try to charge the stage. Oh, my people, for what? God. We had the, people with microphone, ma- megaphones outside on anti-vaxxing, whatever that had to do with oh uh, equity God. and child development and education, and trying to... It, this was an outdoor event, so they were trying to prevent speakers from speaking. So it's that kind of atmosphere, and when you talk to superintendents around the country, they feel like <laughs> they're under siege. They're under country. attack. Wait a minute. Just describe this a little bit more. So everybody's speaking outside, and the anti-vaxxers are got the bullhorns going, or something. Well, first of all, to get in there, and I ran the gauntlet. It was like it was like what they set up at abortion clinics. You know, there were a whole <laughs> bunch of people screaming at you, calling you hypocrites, with a megaphone in your ear, saying, "Talk about equity. Equity is no mass, no vaccines, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Then you get inside. This is at that Starlight Center in Central Square. They're all around the walls with megaphones trying to drown out. You know, we had a panel of uh, five or six uh, distinguished local uh, leaders, and I was giving a brief speech at the beginning and then moderating the panel. They were doing everything they possibly could to uh, interfere with that conversation. Then when that didn't work to their satisfaction, they sent somebody in kind of undercover who just gets up in the middle of the uh, event and starts lecturing the audience, uh, talking (laughs) over the panel and we tried to silence him. Eventually, he got frustrated because we talked over him. And then he made a rush at the stage, and the police, four policemen, had to grapple him to the ground and run him out of the uh, stadium there. So, I mean, and this, this <laughs> no, was. No, I'm a- laughing at bad news. I mean, oh really? my god, this is unbelievable. You know, you, you do, and thank God the cops were there to yes, to yeah, in, that they had security. No but I do wonder why, when people are using bullhorns and disrupting the the panel. 
cannot the police remove them as well for disrupting everything? Well, I mean, here you get to the borders of free speech and, uh, you know, and, and what the limits are of policing in that situation. And I'm not an expert on that. But, you yeah. you know, the same thing arose in the protests outside the mayor's house. I mean, some people are determined. Obviously, they're not changing any minds with this kind of behavior because it's totally <laughs> it's great. Uh, offensive. Oh, my but, God. Uh, well, I'm really sorry I missed that. I was... So the police had to escort the superintendent to the car. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that in an abundance of caution, they were making sure because somebody else who le- had left earlier, you know, got, was was shouted at all the way to the car. They followed the, the individual to the car. So I, I hung around for a while and snuck out the back door. I was lucky I didn't have. By the way, yeah, I, I, I don't want to. Dis- another good reason why all superintendents should be armed. I mean, that's it's obvious. <laughs> there you I mean, go. by the way, do you believe and school this committee is in members, my hometown of yeah, Cambridge? Cambridge. By the way, Jeez, Jim. speaking of the anti, we don't. Uh, you know, it's the end of the world when that our, happens in Cambridge. On our list today was the decision, I think yesterday, to drop the mask mandate, one of the few left in Boston on Monday. There's nothing to talk about. I mean, this is, I mean, in certain limited circumstances, depending upon close contacts, whatever, it'll still be required. But the time has come, right? I mean, it's. I I think the time has come. I mean, I think it's getting more like the flu. And I think individual parents have to make their decisions. And I think the whole culture is heading in that direction. Now, what should happen if we have flare ups? Um, you know, in the future, different kinds of surges. I, we may be back there again, but for the moment, uh, this seems reasonable. So uh, before you go, we only have a couple minutes, and I'm sorry we left this, this so late. My understanding is the federal free lunch program that was implemented as a result of the pandemic that should have been there anyway is set to expire on July 1st. Is that right? That's correct. And is the issue in Massachusetts about whether or not a state awash in extra revenue every month in our <laughs> revenues – and not to mention billions of federal dollars about whether or not we're going to fill the hole in Massachusetts before the legislators go home to run for re-election for yep. six months. They're is too that, busy, Jim. Is too that, busy. Up that's, up. That's, that's what's the on the table. There's a one-year extension of it. And is, that gonna, is there any question they're going to endorse this? I, I, I don't. I don't know what the prognosis is. It's hard to imagine that they wouldn't. Other states in the area, Maine, Vermont, for example, California, I have, believe, have done have. it. Have done it. So what is the the only argument against this? I assume, and I I know what the answer is. Maybe you can give it. The only argument is these universal things give free lunches to people who right. who, who can afford them. So what, what's the argument against that argument, Paul Revel? Well, it, it, just because the the other, um, you know, when you make it uh, something that then only a limited number of people can get and they get it on a sliding scale, you put school departments in, in the position of being collection agencies. Right, right. You stigmatize those who are getting the uh, the lunches. And so you have two classes of people eating different kinds of lunches. And, and so on the whole, the costs and the negative features of not doing it for everybody outweigh the inefficiencies of doing it for you everybody. Know, because of that comment. We, can we get security for Paul Revel to be taken to his to the lobby and then he's on his own? I appreciate this, that. I, know, I have one way, superintendent I, I, on the weekend say to me now, every time I walk into a public room, I do two things. I check for the exits and I check for the security. Is that, you know, is oh any, my God. I know that we're all just saying, okay, fine, let's move on because this is the world. That is unbelievable. Yeah. That, that is unbelievable. 
unbelievable. This is the environment to which we're trying to attract people, young people who we're training at Harvard, for example, to say, you need to do this as a matter of ethics and public service. And they're saying, wow, I can imagine getting an easier job and having an effect in public education without having to be on the front line in that way. So one of one of my comments in Cambridge was, as a community, you better support the superintendent because she's a courageous woman to get up and, and volunteer to take this kind of assignment in these times and will need all the help she can get from the community. Can we end on a positive note? The Starlight uh, Theater space in Central Square is one of the most brilliant, creative things that has ever been done in Cambridge. It is where that thing was. Okay, it's we're brilliant. out of time here, Jim. I All agree. Time. I, I agree. I love being We've been there. Speaking with Paul Revel, former education secretary, professor oh of Harvard God. University's Graduate School nice of Education, you, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab, his latest book, Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Thank you very much, Paul Revel. Coming up, former sheriff of Suffolk County, Andrew Cabral, here not as a host, but as a guest. She's next after the news. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll start Hour 2 with former Secretary of Public Safety in Massachusetts, Andrew Cabral. House Democrats are moving forward with their attempt at gun legislation with little hope for a similar measure coming out of the Senate. Or could this time be different, as Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy suggests? Then it's our media maven, Sue O'Connell. She talked Pride Month in Boston, a Florida valedictorian who is prohibited from saying the word gay. And the Celtics game that she just forgot to watch. <laughs> the Reverend Zaire Monroe and Emmett Price on rumors circulating about Pope Francis' possible retirement. The latest on a sexual abuse cover-up roiling the Southern Baptist Church. Then Boston Globe climate reporter David Abel on how long before Boston is actually underwater and does all this depressing climate and political news make you want to let out a great big stinking F-bomb? Well, you're not alone, but get this. It could be good for you. All that on the way, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Houston Browdy, he's back from wherever he was. I'm Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Before we introduce our next guest, do you know, I just got a text from a former co-worker of ours, Marjorie, you know who re- announced his retirement after 40 years in radio last night? David Allen Boucher, Bedtime Magic. Oh, my goodness, Bedtime Magic. I would like you to know that Marjorie and I know what he looks like. We do. Nobody else, unless you work with him, know what he looks like. But we know what the great David... He is fabulous. And he's also a fabulous guy. And the Bedtime Magic has been great for... Lovers and for anybody else that want to get a little, you know, in the mood at like 10 o'clock at night. Right? Well, you know, the person who texted me said, you know, think about it. You know, a huge percentage of people in this community woke up to Maddie in the morning, gone, yep. as of, and went to bed with the great, talk about a voice, David Allen Boucher. Oh, my God. So in Very any case, we know what he looks like. If you yes. want to know, give us a call. eight seven seven. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to tell you that. In any case, congratulations to him. So as Democrats in the House passed gun safety legislation yesterday, most of the GOP are ready to blame our country's addiction to gun violence on pretty much anything other than the guns themselves. 
Here to expand on that conversation, which, by the way, includes, unfortunately, a 26-year-old who showed up outside Brett Kavanaugh's house, I think with a Glock 17 and knife, zip ties, is Andrew Cabral. Andrew's the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, and sadly did extraordinarily well when I tuned in yesterday, sitting in for me. <laughs> now, I'm trying to be great. honest. She I'm being great. as honest as I can be. But girl power, It was Andrea. really depressing. <laughs> uh, good to th- you are great, Andrea. I really love listening Thank to you. you. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, Andrew, we just had a rather bleak discussion, um, I think, overall with our listeners about whether they thought anyone was going to be persuaded. Um, But I was reminded of the story you told me yesterday about your dad with the Watergate hearings, um, his attitude toward watching them. Tell people that again. Yeah, so uh, the Watergate, and I think, you know, it's funny, I'm forgetting the exact year that they they aired, and I think think it was 73. 73. 73. Okay. So I was, I was a kid. I mean, I was, you know, I was pretty young. I was 50 at um, the time, but it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So I think they, and there was something like 51 or 52 of them that were aired. I don't think my father taped every single one of them, Um, but he had an old, at the time it was new and state of the art, but it was what we would now consider to be an old Bell and Howell reel to reel recorder. Most people would use it for home movies, right? And uh, he started literally taping the hearings off of the television. And I remember asking him why he was doing that, because, you know, you could just sit and watch the television. Why are you taping it? Um, Taping really wasn't a thing. And um, he said, because this has never happened before. You know, a president, there's never, we've never had hearings like this about a president's behavior. This is important. And, um, he taped, I'm not sure that he, I, like I said, I don't think he taped all of them, but he taped, you know, a bunch of them for history. It, he just, he thought it was important enough to tape them. I, I mean, I'll, with the caveat, I'll say that that's significant with the caveat that there wasn't a lot of competition no, there was about not. what to watch. Yeah, it was just your, you know, four or five, <clears throat> three or four major stations that you could watch and every station was carrying it. Unlike today, where you can ignore it completely if you want to, and um, you know a, a, a fake news station like Fox just chooses not to carry it because they're deciding for people what is news and what is not. You know, uh, by the way, because only because it's I'm giving myself a headache. Could you do you? What are your expectations? I didn't hear this part of your discussion yesterday. Quickly, what are your expectations for these? I don't mean for the presenters. But for the presentees, for the American people, for the Justice Department, what's your, I don't know, hope, expectation comes out of this thing? Well, I think it's very smart for there to apparently have been given a great deal of forethought in how this would be presented to the American people. Um, And I guess you could just dismiss it as, you know, this is they're just staging this whole thing, if that's what you want to believe. But I think it's smart for the committee Um, and Democrats in the House to understand that people are accustomed to being presented with a production and a story in order to keep their interest. And Mm -hmm. I think they put considerable effort into that. That's not to say that they are not going to present factual, accurate information. It's just that they are being mindful of what people are accustomed to. I mean, think about this. What? How many many decades... whole generations now have been raised on law and order 
and shows like that where you with it where everybody believes that there's a way to present yep. something yeah we've seen movies that depict uh you know testimony before congress and other bodies so i think it's really smart that they have thought about this and they have thought about um a way to mm-hmm. put this incredibly dense uh fact dense material uh present it in a way that keeps people's interest and consistently reinforces how dangerous this entire thing was and how well coordinated and how many well-known people were involved in the conspiracy to overthrow um, a governmental process. And how, dangerous, and how dangerous it still is. We're talking to Andrea Cabral. So, Andrea Cabral, we talked a lot about guns yesterday, but um, we had some testimony that was just chilling uh, about what happened in Uvalde. I'm going to play you both pieces of sound. The first was from Dr. Ray Roy Guerrero, he's a pediatrician in Uvalde, who spoke before Congress about the scene at the hospital following the shooting. What I did find was something no prayer will ever relieve. Two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. And then we have this 11-year-old, Maya Cirillo, who survived the mass shooting. She was in the room uh, in this pre-recorded video that was also presented to Congress yesterday. If there was something that you want people to know about that day and about you, right, or things that you want different, what would it be? To have security. Do you feel safe at school? Why not? And I should add that the little girl watched the gunman um, say goodnight to her teacher before he shot her in the head. And the same little girl, in an effort to save her own life, covered herself with her classmate's blood so that she would look like she had been killed. I mean, are we, is this going to make a difference? Well, (laughs) we I know we we sort of had this discussion before. It it should if 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 you take if you get elected to represent people at the federal at any level, particularly the federal level, you swear an oath to uphold the laws uh, and the Constitution of the United States and to govern to put people's health and safety and best interests forward first. It should make a difference. What we have in front of us are a group of um, primarily white men who represent a distinct minority of the people in this country deciding that they don't care about that oath and they don't care about the people they were elected to protect. It may sway a few people, but the only, and I do mean only, way to fix this is to vote them out. And that is a tall order in some places where gerrymandering sort of rules the day or in heavily red areas where people won't care about it because they don't think it'll ever happen to them. So until and unless it does happen in their community, they may they won't care enough to vote some of these folks out. But it is it is it is there's almost there really aren't words to describe how any human could sit and listen to a child tell them that they covered themselves, covered him or herself with the blood of a classmate in order to play dead 
um, so that they wouldn't get killed and not feel a, 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 an overwhelming compulsion to make sure that never happens again. But, he, but that's not what's going on in, with the GOP in Congress right now. And even though they're, you know, the House has a bill um, House that passed some Republicans its bill. voted for. Yeah. Yep, passed a bill that some, some Republicans, a handful, voted for. They're pretty sure that, you know, the filibuster is going to kill anything that they try, you know, to do in the Senate. So the bills essentially aren't going anywhere. And the only way to express a lack of tolerance for this is to see that those people are voted out of office, because as long as they have the power to keep ignoring this, they will use it. You know, for whatever it's worth, uh, and it may be just posturing, and I understand it, the point person for the Democrats in the Senate, Chris Murphy, from Connecticut, obviously, and his involvement in this comes from Sandy Hook and being a decent human being, he said this morning that he can see uh, 10 votes, uh, meaning the, to get to the necessary 60 in the Senate. I'm generally not an incrementalist that, on things that really matter like this, but I think I subscribe to his notion that uh, we need some progress to get this stalled, decades-long stalled effort moving. And already they've lowered expectations in terms of what's likely to come out of the Senate, if anything does. But but at least he's saying that there's 10 votes. You know, speaking of the Senate, though, I have to give credit because we've been critical of the Republican outliers. Got to give credit to a guy who hopes to be in the Senate. Herschel Walker, of course, is running against Reverend Warnock the incumbent senator, was asked on Fox News about his approach to gun violence. He had a really thoughtful, insightful, this is a Republican candidate, really thoughtful, insightful answer. Here's Herschel Walker. What about getting a department that can look at young men that's looking at uh, women, that's looking at uh, just social media? What about doing that, looking into things like that, and we can stop that that way? I'm sorry, what was that again? Can we play a Herschel Walker? This guy is running neck and neck with uh, Reverend Senator Warnock from Georgia. Herschel Walker, if you don't know, is a huge former football star. Here he is. What about getting a department that can look at young men that's looking at uh, women, that's looking at uh, just social media? What about doing that, looking into things like that, and we can stop that that way? You know, I, 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 it's, it's almost 46 to 46 is the most recent poll. Uh, he's supported by Donald Trump, which makes it not unlikely that he'll be the next United States Senate. What do you think about his uh, solution to the gun problem, uh, Andrea? Completely, it's completely insane. He's also, he was, I believe he he pled guilty to it. But it may, I'm, if I'm wrong about that, he was he was certainly charged with putting a gun to his girlfriend's head. He's a former football player. Real issue of you know potential CTE here, um, but not very bright. I don't think, just generally speaking, and he, he says. Uh, absolutely. I mean, his his responses to things and his positions on things range from, uh, you know, the incomprehensible to the abjectly stupid. That is not a bar to becoming a GOP uh, primary winner. Um, and depending on where you're running, it is not a bar to actually getting elected if you're a member of the GOP. So, I mean, it's just it's pathetic. I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. And, you know, no one like him should ever be anywhere near um, an elected office, but he's one of many, many, many uh, that that the same could be said for. So I hope Chris Murphy is right to your point. I really yeah. do. I really do. And I and I, well, I hope no that idea. the people yeah. who are moved are moved from from some sense of humanity versus well, if I at least say I in my district, I need to be able to say that I at least voted for something, even though I knew it had no 
chance of passing. I hope that it's a genuine vote versus a politically expedient one. By the way, the answer to your question about Walker and what happened to him, he did not deny that he held a gun to his ex-wife's head and threatened to, quote, blow her brains out. He just said he doesn't remember specifics because he has a mental illness, which includes multiple personalities. So he's not denying that he threatened to blow wow. his ex-wife's uh, brains out. He's the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate. You know, one so more thing on the gun front that yeah, is a little... I, are you going to get in his court? I was going to mention, yes, um, this terrible attack right outside the house of... Or thwarted attack, thank goodness, outside the home of Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, this uh, 26-year-old from California was carrying a gun, ammunition, a knife, pepper spray, a screwdriver, zip ties, and other gear when he was intercepted outside Kavanaugh's house about, I think, about 10 minutes to 2 in the morning, apparently upset about uh, the leak of the uh, possible Supreme Court overturn of Roe v. Wade. He was upset about Kavanaugh's position as an uh, anti-choice person and also a pro-Second Amendment person. So I guess he was um, thought what he should do is kill him. I mean, I what's mean, to say? The guy should be thrown in jail, right? I mean, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of another indication of the overheating of this country in terms of guns to me. I don't disagree with any of that, um, but it is worth pointing out that he called the police and told them that he was there. Yes, and that that he was he had suicidal feelings, and that this is what he was thinking about doing. And that's what there's so much information in I think both the the Washington Post and the New York Times story about his state of mind. The reason there's so much information about his state of mind at the time is because he told them, told not them. after he had done it, but he told them before he, he did it, which is some indication that he didn't actually want to do it. If you really are, even if, you're, if, you, even if you are uh, homicidal, suicidal, and you do intend to kill yourself, you tend genuinely intend to do it versus a gesture, you tend to do it. You may kill a bunch of people and then kill yourself, but you're not letting, you know, you're not, you're not, once you get there and you're in the moment, you're not stopping to call and say, here's who I am, here's where I am, here's why I'm upset, and here's what I'm going to do. So there's some indication that he, you know, no matter how strongly he felt about these issues and Judge Kavanaugh, that when it came down to it, he wasn't actually ready to do that. That doesn't change the fact that this is completely unacceptable uh, to do it, be doing this, you know, at any uh, judge's home, elected official's home, or anybody else that you disagree with, and that he shouldn't uh, be prosecuted for it. You know, I, I want to go back for literally two minutes to the gun thing, because there's something that we we're, we're, haven't spent enough time on. Everybody is focused, understandably, on the leaked Alito opinion on Roe v. Wade. We're going to talk to David Abel, the climate reporter from The Globe, later about a threat to the power of the EPA to cause us to not have a planet that burns to a crisp. Uh, there's also a case before the Supreme Court out of New York that apparently is about a law that's not dissimilar, and you would know for his former Secretary of Public Safety, to one we have here, which puts a higher threshold than just an application for a to carry a gun in public. And Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, who's a former cop, responded to this by saying, let me tell you what I think happens should the Supreme Court strike down the New York law, again, which is essentially duplicated here in a bunch of other states, he said, you're riding, I think, on the number four train, he said, or something, and you look around and every single person run, uh, on the train is armed. 
it didn't sound like hyperbole to me. This essentially would remove any even modestly higher threshold to getting a permit to carry a gun in public. Am I am I not right about that? Right. This this essentially makes guns uh from the Supreme Court's standpoint, a wholly unregulated, um, yeah. uh, very dangerous uh, weapon, wholly unregulated. I mean, that, I mean, if, for people who don't understand the Massachusetts law, that not only are there application procedures and um, uh, gun readiness and training sort of procedures that you have to undergo, Massachusetts police chiefs in cities and towns that actually are responsible for issuing the license have discretion about uh, you have to you have to show proper cause under the law that you need this gun to be and you need to carry it outside of your home. But the police chiefs themselves have a role in assessing whether or not you've shown that proper cause. And the reason that it falls to police chiefs is because they know their communities and they know the people in their communities and they have some power to look sort of beyond what may or may not be obvious to determine mm-hmm. whether or not this person is appropriate to carry a gun inside, I mean, outside of their home. And it, 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 it literally would turn the country into the wild, wild west. I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, I disagree with Adams on a number of other things, but I don't disagree with him on this. And it would be as insane a thing for the SCOTUS to do as the gutting of Roe versus Wade. But we know they're gutting Roe versus Wade, so this is not beyond their ken to do it. The majority, this, this conservative, ultra-right-wing uh, majority, it is not beyond their ken to do it. And by the way, for, just very quickly, for the lawyers, for those who are challenging this in New York, are saying, you know, it runs afoul of the Second Amendment. As we've said to you repeatedly in the last few weeks, Justice Scalia, who wrote the, about as conservative as they get, who wrote the opinion in the Heller case, which for the first time in 2008 said a well-regulated militia means you, an individual. There's an individual right to own weapons. He affirmatively said in his decision that some gun regulation is appropriate and constitutional. So when you hear uh, uh, Second Amendment absolutists on this saying no imposition no regulation uh, like New York's uh, is constitutionally permissible. They just happen to be factually wrong, but unfortunately, they probably have five justices on their side. We're talking to Andrea Cabral, former Secretary of Public Safety. So, Andrea, we have been critical of Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, who's running the Department of Justice earlier in the show. I don't understand how uh, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice cannot uh, prosecute these two former FBI agents who um, didn't do anything about these young women and older women and all sorts of people reporting that Larry Nasser, who used to be the doctor for the USA Gymnastics team, was abusing them. Um, this story I read this morning said that 70 more people were abused between the time that the f- reports hit the FBI and there was any action. And one of these FBI guys was looking for a job with the Olympics. I mean, how can they not prosecute these people? I, I have absolutely no idea. This is, a, this is, it's sort of, it's incomprehensible as to how uh, the Justice Department doesn't take every possible measure to do this, to, to prosecute this. So I, there, are, there are three agents that are, that are, uh, you know, primarily named in all of the stories. And one of them is a guy named Abbott. He's the guy that was 
while he was supposed to be simultaneously investigating this, was also looking for a job yeah. uh, with the Olympic Committee. Um, but the other two agents, one of whom uh, retired a few years ago, but uh, I think, you know, misconduct in the in the course of your job, your pension could at least still be taken away. Um, and the other who resigned sometime after this sort of all came to light, I think he was still there. Um, I don't think any any of them are really beyond the reach of the FBI. And what doesn't make sense to me is if for the rest of us, this is the rule, this is the law. If you lie to the FBI, you, yeah. if that's all yeah. you do, right? Even if they never prove whatever the underlying crime is against you that they're investigating. If you lie to the FBI in the course of an investigation, it is a separate crime. And think about that, right? You basically have a right to lie to anyone that you want in your life, unless the lie is signed under the pains and penalties of perjury, like there's a written oath, or unless you lie to an FBI agent or in court, right, after you take an oath. That is incredibly unique. And so, to make it a separate crime and then say when they were interviewed, these agents were interviewed by uh, FBI agents internally, they lied to them. That's part of what the inspector general found. It's part of what the FBI found in, in its own internal investigation, that they committed these crimes. And to not charge them at least for that is, is amazing. So what's with this guy? I mean, we talk, that's what I understand. You, you don't want to have two sets of, of rules, right? One for the connected people and one for everybody else. We're supposed to be a government of laws, not of men. When you see these high profile ignoring the laws for all sorts of people, including people that were subpoenaed and just basically said drop dead to those subpoenas, what... I mean, what do people in your business think is going on? Uh, I don't I, I don't think that there's I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at it. Um, I agree with you that it's this does not strike me as the kind of thing that Merrick Garland would allow to be ignored if it could be prosecuted. So I, I immediately think maybe I'm missing something. There's something that's either not being reported or you just generally unknown in the facts that is preventing this somehow. Um, a more cynical view would be that, you know, when you go after people inside your organization for wrongdoing and they've, they're people who have been there long enough to retire, they tend to know where a lot of other bodies are buried. So when you go up against them, there's always the threat that they will talk about other things that they know, because at that point they have nothing left to lose. And so that's a really cynical view that perhaps the, the declination of prosecution was to keep uh, other and maybe even unrelated embarrassing things about the FBI coming out based on what uh, one or more of these agents know. I don't, I don't have any evidence of that at all. Like I said, it's the more cynical view, but, be, but I'm, I'm led to it to some degree because the decision not to find uh, some basis for prosecution is just um, inconceivable here. Let me just say, uh, I think touch on these women, or these gymnasts, Oh, have been relentless yep. and brilliant yeah. and world-changing. Oh, they're suing. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, for a billion dollars combined. Yep. Their testimony in front of Congress, which was incredibly powerful and courageous. Their statements at the sentencing for Nasser, this litigation. I mean, they really, they they are helping, I hope, to change uh, change the world. But I'm, and I'm, I don't think it's for the money. I think they want with you. the case to go yeah. forward and they you. want the discovery phase and they want people on the stand testifying. And that is going to hurt uh, a lot here. 
for the FBI. Andrea, it's great to see you. Thanks so much. Good you really were you. terrific again when I heard Thank yesterday. you. Thanks that's so right. Much he was very it. nervous, Andrea. Let me tell I you. I still am nervous, but that's <laughs> so let me correct your statement. Thank you very much. Good okay. to see you, Andrea Cabral. <laughs> Andrea Cabral is the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Coming up, our media maven Sue O'Connell here to talk about the January 6th hearings, Gay Pride Month, and a lack of legal protections for non-biological parents right here in Massachusetts. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Mardrigan Gimbrowdy. And yes, we are back at the library tomorrow with a fabulous show, I should say. Not unlike the average show, but it's a pretty, not, I, I don't know, it's a pretty, it's a good okay, show. Okay, usually we're not very good, no, but tomorrow that. we're really well, stepping up our game. Better than others is what I, I'm so, okay. sorry about that. All so right. here to take on the social norms and abnormalities of the day, including everything from Fox News opting not to cover the January 6th hearings tonight uh, to Massachusetts being an outlier when it comes to equitable protection uh, for LGBTQ parents. Uh, it's time for Media Maven Sue O'Connell. Sue's the publisher of Bay Windows, South End News, contributor to Current on NBC, LX, and NECN, but I'm sure most of you know her as the frequent host of Greater Boston right here yes. on uh, uh, GBH <laughs> because apparently I can't show up for work. Hello, Sue O'Connell. How are you? Hello, Sue Big shins to fill. Good day. Oh, it's not that great a show tomorrow. I'm not going to be there. So oh, that's a good library. point because you're so, here now. Yeah, that's a good that's point. A good point. Thank you. So first of all, let's start an upbeat note here. Yeah. How about those Celts? Woo! <laughs> Sue is silent, which means she doesn't even know they're I, yeah, playing. Yeah, I didn't watch it. They're oh, playing. okay. Wait a second. Know. You didn't watch it? No, no, I didn't. You know oh, what? Because I have to pace myself for the hearings. I can only stay up late so often. So that's the, you know, and Jim, I had to fill in for you. So that's it's very good hard. It's a, it's okay, a that's a good excuse. You do a lot. That's a good excuse. Well, except my show is over two hours before the hear- before the game, so it's not much <laughs> of an exhausted. excuse. Okay, all right. Well, then Okay, well, that was that. a good discussion. Thank Since you. Since you were pacing yourself for the hearings, uh, let's move on. Here's Liz Cheney. Let's play Liz Cheney, who's obviously going to play a starring role. Benny Thompson's the chair. Republican Liz Cheney's the vice chair. The two of them are going to be the leaders of this thing starting tonight at 8 o'clock and then into next week. Here she is, Cheney, that is, Congresswoman Cheney, on CBS Sunday morning, urging the American people to pay attention to the hearings. People must pay attention. People must watch, and and they must understand how easily our democratic system uh, can, can unravel if we don't defend it. Is that unduly optimistic there, Sue O'Connell? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about how I can uh, tweet off the Celtics and the, the, the finals and say, boy, I, I hope we have as much passion and excitement, which I'm not being critical of, for our American government and our democracy as we have for basketball games. Um, it's a, you know, look, it, it's always a heavy lift. These hearings, even in the olden days, uh, were difficult. I actually had my wisdom teeth out during the Oliver North hearings uh, and was completely drugged up watching them and, you know, have a very different perspective of what I think happened than yeah. what actually did happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that's going to be so hard here is we're talking about how uh, the hearings are going to be in prime time. What does that even mean anymore? Right. You know, people don't watch programs or television or their shows or their movies uh, on prime time anymore. Well, they well, watch hold it in on. demand. Hold on. Old people do, I think. Right. Right. And I old mean, I people vote true. and matter. Yep. 
but you know, are, are they the ones that are going to be watching? Because uh, they they've already got their minds made up. So the challenge here that the 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 committee has is they and they they have to make something that is going to be able to generate some social media buzz in a way without grandstanding, you know, which will turn people off uh, in an environment where our attention spans are continuing to shrink in this TikTok world. So, uh, you know, I know that they have brought in a, a, a former ABC news director, uh, kind of an old school guy, but, you know, they also have to make this case. It's not a court case, but they have to give a compelling argument in a way that we all understand. So, you know, I'm, it's a big, a big heavy lift. I hope that they can do it in a way that is authentic, uh, lays out the facts and connects with the Can American I public. Can I interrupt you? Uh, I want to yeah. get back because you're aggravating me with this old person thing. Uh, there are going to be a ton of young people listening because young watching, mm-hmm. young people are more aware than the average American that our democracy is hanging by a thread whether that plays itself out with climate change or gun violence or whatever it is, I think the audience is going to be there. I think the issue is, are, as we discussed earlier in the show, are people's positions baked in yep. to the extent where even if they can prove Donald Trump organized the people, Donald Trump knew what was going to happen, Donald Trump admitted to his aides that he lost the election, is anybody going to change their position and I would the fear I have is the answer is no. I mean that's well. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But I'm yeah. What, no, I and I agree with you. I I, I I'm, that's why I'm I'm I want to make sure that the format of it is appealing to an audience that will be receptive mm-hmm. to having an open mind about it. And I think, uh, or you at know, least you know, you know uh, considering you know, it. But what I what I hope happens is that people understand what Donald Trump did, what the Proud Boys did, what people that support him, people who were appointed by Donald Trump, people who were on Donald Trump's team, what they were saying to him and how he wasn't listening to to them. I think those witnesses are going to be very important uh, in their testimony and and the reports. And I hope that this says, and I don't want to make this about politics because you know, I think that also turns people off when you say the Democrats and the Republicans, even though this is a mix of both who have worked on this committee. But I hope what this says as we head into the midterms is that some of these candidates who didn't do well on primary night, but are still some of them in the mix, that are denying the election really happened, that have aligned themselves with Donald Trump, with who Donald Trump has aligned themselves, that these these candidates can no longer be viable participants in our democracy and uh, in, in a real way. And I hope that that's one of the results of this hearing and the hearings in the future. Okay. You well, know, not I, okay. Can I, I just say I, one more thing? You know, I got to say, it's, it's, it says something really pathetic about the United States of America. I'm with you. That, that um, an effort was made to overthrow the government and to yep. do, uh, un, do, get a, do away with something, the peaceful transmission of power, which has been kind of one of the hallmarks of democracy that we have to hope that we're not also pathetic that we won't pay attention Yeah, and we to have it. to be reminded of this. I mean, this is the other part. We all Some people want to move on, right? Some people don't want to revisit this. But this, if, if we've learned anything in our American history, is every time we think we want to move on for something, it comes back and bites us. So this is this that horrendous day that I still get a pit in my stomach when I think about has to be uh, re- has to be examined. I'm not even sure re-examined is the right word. Has to be examined. People have to be held accountable. And, and folks have to understand, to your point, 
Marjorie, what that means. I mean, I, I joked once, I was watching uh, the Clinton inauguration and a telemarketer called me and I said, I, I can't talk to you right now. I'm watching the peaceful transfer of power. Um, <laughs> and it, it has to be, and he laughed and he went, oh no, you're right. We take that for granted. You know, we have to understand and hopefully they'll change the rule, you know, that this that the certification charade that, that almost gave us a, another four years of Donald Trump, that they could fix that as well. So I'm hoping there's actually tangible things that come out of these hearings. Let me just say one thing uh, that doesn't require any comment from anybody. I'm not going to spend <laughs> one more second on this Fox News thing. Fox News is not oh. running this because they're implicated in the whole damn thing. And they're going to be texts oh, and things read yep. from Laura Ingram and all these other characters. Obviously, they're not going to carry the hearing. We're talking to Sue O'Connell. So happy Pride Month, Sue. Thank you. Happy Pride. So we ta- I mean, we've talked to you and I'm sure everybody's aware of what happened, you know, the parade and all that sort of stuff. So what's the essence of what's happening this month that our listeners who care about uh, diversity and tolerance and loving one another, or at least not hating one another, uh, should care about? Yeah, I think, you know, it's actually a a great moment. I've been talking to a number of leaders in the community and just just folks where a lot of the events that happened anyway, but weren't part of the official Boston Pride umbrella uh, have now just gotten more significance and more prominence. There are still block parties. There have been uh, uh, forums. Mayor Wu and and her team uh, launched Pride at Boston City Hall on uh, June 1st by lighting the building up. Uh, and having a, a, a variety of uh, performers and speakers. There was a Pride on Boston Common last week. There are block parties this weekend. Uh, and I think it's been a moment where folks can remember that uh, Pride didn't start as a corporate entity that was charging people to march in a parade. It started as people, you know, obviously having an uprising at Stonewall, but then carrying on looking to make change. So it's been um, a bit of a impulse. We're happy all to be back together again. Sue, Sue hold on, hold event. on. Hold yeah. on. You just said charging people for marching in the parade. Was that? Yeah. Mean? I mean, well, when when the Boston Pride, I mean, and many pride, uh, many parades do this to participate in the parade. You have to pay a fee. Uh, and What's the fee? Um, that I can't remember what the fee was. It used to be different between a corporation, the size of group that you would have marched, whether you were a nonprofit. But, you know, they have to pay for things. They have to pay for the police. They have to pay for sanitation there are a number of fees that go along with it and then if you were going to be at the uh the festival at the end you'd have to pay to be there okay. as well and so i just want to be clear while, i just want to be clear because yeah. it wasn't clear are you saying this in a disparaging way that they have to pay to parade or is this okay no i'm just saying it's the evolution you know it okay. started as a protest march that you took over the street and it turned into a massive uh, okay. uh tourist attraction there was some pushback. I mean, you are you are picking up correctly. There was some pushback about uh, who had to pay and why some groups who were the original marchers who had been there couldn't just continue to be in the parade without having to pay. But it's just become a more grassroots uh, or return to a grassroots sort of evolution right. of celebrating pride. So I think everyone is uh, taking a breath, enjoying the month and uh, looking forward to figuring out if we can all come together <laughs> as know, a bunch of like herding cats to try and do a parade if people want it. So you mentioned Mayor Wu. Didn't she just name somebody? I'm not sure I know the name of the office, yeah, the Quincy. LGBTQ Advancement Office or something. Didn't she just yes. elevate someone? Quincy yes. Roberts. Quincy, Quincy Roberts, Quincy, right, yeah. Quincy Roberts, who has been Oh, he's key, on the show on uh, Tuesday, I'm just told. Yeah, so yeah. great, great, great. Yeah, he's been a, a key uh, activist in the community for years with the uh, Gay Black Hispanic Coalition. Uh, always, but yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have him in that position. And he was the LGBTQ liaison 
uh, to the mayor's office. So he's he worked really hard to get a lot of these events together too this month. So yeah, we're thrilled about that. You know, one of the we uh, I mean a, the gays, we the gays, the gay, the gays. <laughs> the gays okay. There's a piece in the New York Times about it's sort of somewhat relates to the fee thing you were mentioning to Marjorie about you know corporate sponsorship. Everybody tries to like glom on corporations, try to glom on to pride, obviously for financial benefits. And they the the piece is about people using primarily social media to sort of mock the relations. And my favorite of the citations, they have this guy, Hudson Farr is 24, tweeted the following. As a queer child, I learned firsthand that sometimes words can be the most hurtful weapons. That's why this Pride Month, I'm partnering with Raytheon. Which I, <laughs> so here's I the love funny that. thing. That so right, here's, great. here's the underscore of that, okay? Yeah. Raytheon was actually one of the first corporations, first companies in Massachusetts and one of the first government-related companies to offer protected benefits and health benefits really? to their trans employees. They're wow, trans. Good for them. Great. Good for them. Right. And so, um, wow. you know, when they're, they also do make weapons. Um, so <laughs> it's uh, when they, you know, Raytheon is actually one of those examples of when they say they support LGBTQ hey, people, they mean it, but you know, they are also Raytheon, but hey, Sue, uh, so it's a funny mix. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question after the, what happened in Florida with DeSantis going after Disney world for standing. And I know you're a frequent visitor to Disney world, uh, for standing up for gay rights after a, a, a fashion anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder what the community is thinking about, um, these corporate partnerships. I mean, are corporations backing away now if they're in these <clears throat> very conservative states with a guy like DeSantis running the show or Greg Abbott in Texas? I mean, yeah, um, yeah you know, it's it's interesting um, in that there's a lot of gay people in Florida, right? Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, there's a lot of gay people everywhere, but there are particularly a lot of uh, gay folks in Florida. And um, Florida, o- over the past 15 years, the Florida tourism business has spent a lot of money reaching out to LGBTQ travelers uh, and encouraging them to come to Florida and um, doing all, anything they can to try and, and um, make Florida a place. There's, there's actually a, 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 a town that's all, all gay. You know, it's, a, it's a, uh, one of those little properties, those weird properties that they have in Florida where it's an it's a LGBTQ town. So we're in a particular distress in not wanting to abandon them uh, and not give them the business that they rely on, yet at the same time looking to put pressure on companies not to give them new business. So there are a number of organizations uh, that are, 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 are planning events but not planning to bring them back to Florida or to go to Florida. There hasn't been a call for a boycott of the states um, yet, but um, I, 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 you know, I think that there's uh, organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and um, some of the national organizations are trying to figure out what the best approach to be is. It's one thing to say, you know, you've got this anti-trans bill. We're not going to bring, you know, the NBA finals to your your city. But it's another thing to call for a full boycott, especially when there are so many LGBTQ people in Florida that need the support and the business. Can we focus on one LGBTQ uh, person in Florida? I am in love with this kid. <laughs> this is this Pine View School senior class president. His name is Xander Moritz. Uh, This is Osprey, Florida, wherever that is. He's told by his, I think the principal, that they would cut his, uh, he's the uh, valedictorian or the graduation speaker. They're told by his principal they would cut his microphone off if he said the word gay or talked about his activism 
around gay and lesbian rights. So he comes up with a replacement for the word gay, and namely it's, quote, having curly hair. Here's just a snippet of uh, young Xander. As you know, I have curly hair. I used to hate my girls. I spent mornings and nights, embarrassed of them, trying desperately to straighten this part of who I am. But the daily damage of trying to fix myself became too much to do. Is this kid unbelievable? And by the way, two school committee members who have courage sat on the stage with him, I think either either wearing a pride flag or a hat or something. Yeah, wearing wearing buttons that said Segay. Right, exactly. So flesh out this story a little, Sue. I I just really love this kid. Yeah. So first, let me tell you that I was class president uh, in 1980 in Revere. Yep. Really? Uh, and, um, I gave you a speech. superstar, you. Yep, I, I know. I gave a speech about um, whether or not that was really pizza we were being served and if asbestos was following us on the cafeteria. So you clearly did not. I wasn't as I did. Yeah, I was. I and what was the jokes. reaction? It was people thought it was hysterical. I just got wow. up and did a comedy routine because at one point I thought I was going to be a stand up comic. <laughs> so clearly, I, I, you know, every year these stories come of these high school students who give these groundbreaking speeches. Remember one girl last year, I think, gave a speech about uh, pro, being pro choice. Um, and I talked about pizza and made jokes. So I just want to, you know, give props to these kids who are clearly brilliant. He, um, you know, he, he just basically circumvented this idea of, uh, pushing down on kids not being able to be themselves. He's been very active on in his high school as as an openly gay kid. They, his principal, and I think it's pretty much confirmed, told him, don't make it pol- mm-hmm. about politics. Don't make it about you or we're going to cut off your mic. And he found Can a way to imagine? do it, which I love. Oh, he, and he didn't want to disrupt everybody's right, graduation, right. which so I think he took the message. Listen, it's not just about you. It's about everybody else's day, too. And he made it into something extremely entertaining and special uh, and did what, you know, gays have done forever. I mean, we're all old enough to remember when someone was called musical. You know, that meant that they were gay. So he took a characteristic that he had no control over. Yeah, he, is he musical? Um, a characteristic that he has no control over his curly hair. Uh, he used that as a stand-in for being gay and talked about how hard he would try to fit in by straightening his hair or how everyone could recognize that this was his characteristic. So, I mean, I just, I, I agree with both of you. It was just a tremendous speech. I listened to the whole thing. I, I would ask people to do it. And I would also point how absurd it is, you know, in Florida that a, a genius kid like this, who we want more kids like this, had to turn himself into a pretzel, into a curly-haired pretzel, in order to be authentically himself for his classmates who obviously loved him. You know, the, the thing that they, – they, and they got it right away. The kids got it oh, right yeah. away. The first yeah. mention of curly hair, they knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> and that was what was so great about it because it obviously sabotaged the whole thing. And I'm sure that the school authorities realized what he was doing about 30 seconds after he started recognizing yeah. curly hair. But what were they going to do? Were they going to shut off his mic because he talked about his right. curly hair? So it was the perfect, you know, threading of the needle, as it were, you know, unbelievably yep. Yep. clever. Perfect. By the way, yeah. it's a wire story this morning is Governor DeSantis has had the kid deported. But that's <laughs> for another day. And his head shaved. And so he shaved his head. The good news yeah. is there's courage in Florida by this young man and his supporters. The bad news is when I read the story about the Massachusetts Parentage Act, yes. to find yeah. out that we're the only New England state that has not expanded language about LGBTQ parenting and the legal rights of such parents, 
I was stunned. So first tell yep. us briefly, if you can, what exactly, what problem would this legislation address, Sue? Sure. So it's not just about LGBTQ parents. It's about all different types of parents who are not necessarily biologically see, related see, to their children, right? Surrogacy. So if, you, if, you're, if you're a straight couple and um, you're not married and you're a man and a woman, woman gives birth to a baby, immediately they send social services to make the person they think is the, the father to mm-hmm. say, yes, I am the father. This is so they can make sure that they have it on record and they get, can get child support and an authorization that he is indeed the biological father of the child. And they, if you go in with surrogacy or other methods and you're a, a straight couple, they don't DNA test the child to see if the father is biologically related to the baby. So mm-hmm. there are a number of rights and privileges that automatically happen when you go into a hospital, when you are a heterosexual couple with a baby uh, without questions being asked. However, if you're a same-sex couple, uh, if obviously if a woman gives birth and her uh, lesbian partner is there and they're both going to be the parents of the child, there is no mechanism to make sure that the mother who is not the biological mother uh, has the rights of parenting, which means you need to go through a second parent adoption afterwards. So there's an additional step. You just can't declare at birth, this is my child. Uh, and these, we're the two parents of this child, like straight couples do. So what this law would do is, like uh, the other five states in New England, is would just allow you, uh, if I'm reading it correctly, to declare these are the parents of this child, and it would eliminate another step of second parent adoption, which other, you know, almost every single gay couple has to go through uh, uh, when they have a biological child you know, from one so of the parents. Can I ask a parents. quick question but, about? But I'm not, I'm, why are you surprised? Because every year we hear that the legend is getting to be June and July. The legislature hasn't yeah. done ninety percent of what they're. And they got to take do, a half year off because it's an election year. They're in a mad yeah. rush. They haven't yeah. done anything about guns. But either. you're Look jumping. Th- you're jumping. The que- the question is on something like this, and I agree. It's always the last minute, so we would have done it. We don't have time. What is the controversial part of this? What's the Who opposes part about guns well, in what Massachusetts? Are, what, are, what are they? Why contem- haven't they at, Well, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to uh, say that we could be having open carry of guns. You mean in why are they not passing legislation exactly. and, and tis- Yeah, but let's stay on the. I agree with you. Let's stay on this for one second. Who is opposing this, and why can't it be on Baker, Governor Baker's desk? Tomorrow, Sue. What am I missing? Yeah. Something or no? No, I just I I think it's just I I don't really I can't find anyone who's because also it also benefits straight couples. You know, it's not just LGBTQ right. couples, uh, and they're the majority okay. of people who actually would be affected by this. I just think to you we both know your why. points. We just haven't done it. Why? I mean, it's just been because our legislature does almost nothing unless <laughs> they they've got a. I, I shouldn't say guns. Yeah, somebody, in this somebody context, had to, but that's how it feels yeah. like being in mass. A somebody had citizen. to introduce this bill. Uh, Representative Tom had to yeah. introduce. Yeah, she had to introduce the bill. So we've got all these loop, these holes and loopholes everywhere. It would be great if we just took six months and said, okay, let's get a, rid of those laws on the books, which are archaic. You know, we can serve our help lobster more than three times a week without going to jail. And in the same time, let's make sure we are protecting the rights of parents across the state. How about you know, that for six months? We're going to actually, we're going to invite Kay Conn on to talk about this. So we can get to the bottom yeah. of this before they go home for the summer. Before you go, I want to give you a little taste of what you missed because you were so <laughs> exhausted from doing Greater <laughs> Boston last night. Here's just a Hard. snippet of it. Go ahead. Game three, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford. Shot clock is turned off. They're getting a standing ovation. Boston Celtics take game three. They're two wins away from a title. So is that not making your heartbeat oh, faster or what? 
Oh, we won? That's <laughs> great. I mean, you know it was great? But you know it was great? And, and the Globe really talked horrible. about it over and over again. The, the, it was just electric at the TG Garden. Yeah. People were beside themselves. Oh, you know, you didn't read this uh, because you were preparing for this segment. They calculated this morning early there were more F-bombs dropped by a crowd <laughs> at Draymond Green than in the history of professional sports. Sue, so yeah. you were great on Greater Boston. Thanks for great. doing Thank it. Thank you good for to letting see me you. do it. I appreciate Thanks it. So great much. to see you guys. Good Bye. to talk to you. Thank you much, Sue O'Connell. Sue O'Connell is the co-publisher of Bay Windows and South Bend News and contributed to Current on NBC, LX, and NECN. And of course, our BPR media maven. Coming up, the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price on rumors circulating around Pope Francis and his future as the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Their next don't go away. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the Boston Public Library. Mar, just one little update from the New York Times because we talked a lot about January 6th today. The FBI this morning arrested Ryan Kelly for his involvement in January 6th. You know who Ryan Kelly is, Marjorie? Nope. Uh, he's only the leading Republican candidate for uh, governor in uh, Michigan, I should say. He's leading, oh, my God. He's the leading candidate oh of the five Republicans running for governor. Oh my wow. God. Here with thoughts and reactions to rumors about the health and future papacy of Pope Francis, as well as new info on the abuse of children and adults in the Southern Baptist Church by its leaders, are Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. Reverend Monroe is a syndicate religion columnist and the Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Reverend Price is the founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Alston, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music, and together, of course, they host the All Revved Up podcast. Hello, Revs. Hey, thanks for having us hey. back. Hey. Happy, to you. happy Pride Month, folks. And Absolutely. to you, of course. So before we get any further into this discussion, because Emmett Price is a man of principle, unlike Jim and me, <laughs> he does not watch the NFL. Now, can you watch the Celtics, Emmett Price? Well, I'm not going to get myself in trouble. I do watch the Celtics. I enjoy watching the Celtics, but I have Los Angeles blood in me, and I grew up during the 1980s <laughs> oh my God. with the Lakers and that. So so let me say I do enjoy the Celtics. I, I do uh, root for them, um, but I don't have any Celtic green gear. That okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just want to make sure you can watch the NBA. I'm disappointed that you're rooting for the wrong team, but I get it. You're from the West Coast, so that's <laughs> – that's okay. So let's get back to the um, uh, um, the difficult stories about the Southern Baptist Church. A lot of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Church, it is very similar to the Catholic Church and to Larry Nasser and to all these other cases where people knew what was going on, Emmett, and uh, the accusations were made. And in one case of this woman, Krista Brown of Colorado, when she went forward 2007, which is quite a while ago, she says she was uh, met with hostility uh, and really shut right down when she tried to complain. So what do we make of this? I guess it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, this is just such a sad story um, and, and such a, uh, a horrible, um, you know, thing to occur in the church. Um, you know, there's a new database out. And at the top of the database, apparently it says this is a fluid working document, which is kind of scary. And then it also has about 600 entries. Um, but then it says that not all the people here uh, are, are Southern Baptists and it has not been proofed. 
and has not been adequately researched. So, so I guess this is an attempt to, to do the right thing yeah. way too late. Um, and I would occur, at, you know, suggest in the wrong way. I mean, I think they should yeah. expose yeah. every individual uh, who has done something <laughs> heinous and harsh and, and do it in a way where they know that they have been exposed. By the way, be, uh, before yeah. you weigh in on this, there for if people are curious, thanks to our colleague McKenzie, there is a Massachusetts pastor on the list. This guy, Lawrence Brown, from the Mount Calvary Baptist Church, confessed this. I'm reading from the report. Confessed to molesting a teen, teenager in 04 and 05. The matter was handled internally by the church. No charges, meaning no criminal charges, were made against uh, this Brown uh, character, Irene. Okay. First of all, Marjorie, I want you to know that yesterday I wore all green, and today I'm wearing all green, although I am a Knicks fan. So (laughs) I just want you to know there are females who are also Celtic fans. Oh, absolutely. but, but I want to make this point here. Um, it's, it's not about doing the right thing at all. It's more about the liability is much greater. They're not really motivated by any moral high ground at all. One of the things you got to understand that when you have a sex, a sex, you know, scandal going on, then these churches, particularly these mega churches here, I mean, there's, there'll be a diminishment of your cash flow. But also, I mean, the church, those churches about empire building. And so they're not only sort of widening their sphere in terms of real estate, but also in terms of local and national, you know, politics. So, I mean, it's, it's a liability not to address the issue. It's, it, it has nothing new that, you know, you know, I had a change of heart or Jesus put it in my heart to change my mind. But another thing is your biggest cash flow are women. And again, I've, I've said this before, when the biggest and most prominent evangelical like Beth Moore yes. announces that she is splitting from the Southern Baptist Church, you have a serious crisis because no matter whether you're in the white uh, Catholic church or the Southern Baptist church or the black church, women are the backbone of the church. So you have a serious, it's not a crisis of, of faith. You have a much bigger crisis, which is the maintenance of, of, of that building here. I look forward to the day that now we've exposed sex scandal, certainly in the Catholic church and now in one of the biggest Protestant denominations like Southern Baptist. I hope one day we also hit the black church, because all of those churches got skeletons in their closet. You know, I want to say, it reminded me, uh, when you mentioned the Catholic, well, several of you mentioned the Catholic church, uh, we should just say Marjorie and I were lucky enough to be invited to do panels yes, we were. at this 20th anniversary event on Saturday in Quincy in, in honor of the late, great Phil Saviano. And there were a whole bunch of leaders, both rank-and-file Catholics who have had the courage for the years to stand up and and be counted, and some of the relentless uh, uh, leaders, the Garabedians and the Ann Barrett Doyles, etc. Carmen Gerso. Yeah, and Bob Hotzman. It was one of the most inspiring events. Uh, you would think it'd be really depressing. It was one of the most uplifting events in many ways because of the courage in the room that we've been lucky enough to go to. So I wanted to thank them you know, what, for the invite. Uh, 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 yeah, well, when I see Catholics that, that make those kind of pronouncements and stand behind those kind of justice issues, they really are upholding the four basic principles of the Catholic social teaching. Yeah. 
I always appreciate. Margie, do you know what they are? Because even a lot of Catholics, you know, don't know what they are. But if you're pounded by the sisters, like I was back in the orphanage, <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you know, you grow up with that. That becomes a part of an ethos that you take out in the world. You embody it as well as you act it out in the world. Well, tell us. And I don't, don't think talk I enough tell about, us. What are the four? <laughs> Well, I was hoping that you know. <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you no. what they are then. Okay. I, I, I got to talk about it here. In any case. Okay. But I didn't it was go great. to Catholic school. I missed out on that. On By the that way, part, I, I, I think I said Bob Holtzman from Road to Recovery. It's Bob Holtzman, of course. Another yeah. brilliant leader. They were incredible. So William Barber, uh, we've said this to you before. Yeah, Reverend Barber. Was, remember? not only on. He was in our studio. And I have to say. Yeah. Talk about and and oh how intimidated God. by just the the presence <laughs> of this incredible human being. This was right after he spoke at the Democratic convention. He was just incredible. Obviously, he's got this poor people's campaign, and there is, I guess, I think it's fair to say, I'm a polite criticism from Reverend Barber that uh, candidate Joe Biden was more than willing, in fact, anxious to speak at as many poor people's campaign issues when he wanted the presidency, but apparently has no time in his schedule to meet with the poor people's campaign now that he is president. Is that uh, correct? That's beyond fair. I mean, you know, what what, what Barber is doing is saying that he doesn't want to get into a personality battle with the president. So he's not trying to go low and be messy, but he is suggesting that when the president needed to be elected, he reached out to mm-hmm. Barbara. As a matter of fact, Barbara actually preached the at the um, the prayer service. I forgot about that. Yeah. Right. And so so the the, the lack of a response here. Um, and it's not even that um, the, the president has said no or not yet. The president has said nothing um, at the request right. to be, um, you know, to have a uh, a gathering uh, at the White House about poor people. I mean, that's not right. partisan. It's not, you know, uh, a, a political platform. I mean, I think we should all care about yeah. people who are impoverished yeah. in this season. You know, it bothers me about it. It's and and again, when it when it comes to black folks, this is how white politicians use us. They want our votes, but not our concerns. And they always want us for a photo op moment. Now, as of 2020, and of course, the pandemic has had a lot to do with it. We got 37.2 million people that are now at the poverty level. And now that went up much, went up by, by, by three and a half points from, from 2019. But we understand that the, that, you know, COVID certainly has had a huge, you know, uh, issue with that uh, elevation. But I think that in a moment when I'm pay- and I'm fussing about gas and I'm someone who put putts from my house to Whole Foods, which is just two blocks away in my car. <laughs> and I'm, I'm complaining about five. No, but gas is five dollars a, a, a gallon, you know, and then we got stuff like people looking for baby formula. And let's talk about student loan debt. And the whole idea of have, of electing this president and Clyburn, you know, getting behind him, it would it really would help all of us kind of get a leg up and a foot out of our situation that the life our life, our living situation would be improved here. But, you know, the silence to me means to me that it's not that I'll get to it later. It says to me, in many ways, it's avoiding the very issue that you promised us uh, that you would address. Well, you know what, sir, I'm obviously, I'm assuming the concern is legitimate demands are going to be made by the poor people's campaign. The Democratic, some Democratic leaders don't want to say no to 
uh, or even yes to prior to an election. That's surely not a justification, but that I think is the the deal. And by the way, we should add, when you say the numbers of 37.2 million living in poverty, incredibly, the numbers for some families went down during the pandemic because of the child tax credit. And they're now going up mm-hmm. yep. post paint. Well, po- whatever we are, because of the the unconscionable uh, uh, expiration of this poverty removing uh, uh, measure. We're talking to uh, Emmett Price well, and Irene Monroe. Mm-hmm. But Jim, but Jim, yeah. but don't you recall? I mean, like this is this is a this is a nag in many ways because I remember as a kid during the the during King's era that that was that was King's platform, but, mm-hmm. and and the whole yeah. idea about it it was he was he was casting a wide net because this is the way that you not only talk about black issues but you you but you also include poor whites you you include most of America. Around this of course. issue, no, you're, you're so talking right. about the poor people's campaign. So then it allows the Rust Belt or the flyover states that we say that you know Democrats ignore. It becomes this huge umbrella. I would think that as a president that wants to cross the aisle and trying to avoid as much tension clearly on, a, on uh, that we have in the polarization. I mean, so many bills are dead on arrival, like gun reform that was just passed by the House. I would think that he would take something like this and, 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 and sort of dwarf that distance that is between Republicans and Democrats. You know, just one thing, uh, I mean, maybe you already knew this line, and I should have, but I didn't, from this uh, Reverend Liz Theo Harris. She's a minister as well and a fellow. Oh, I like uh, her. When, when, yeah, <laughs> and, her, and she's the co-chair of the, uh, of the Poor People's Campaign. She said, when we lift from the bottom, everybody can rise. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. I, I just thought that was um, is that a common line I just missed? It's, well, it's consistent with yeah. the movement because yeah. the movement has in the past said, you know, uh, even a note to Biden, the way to build back better is to build back better from the bottom up. And so and that's right. one of the reasons why they're all aggregating down in D.C. on June 18th um, for this movement. So, yeah, but you know, the thing about it, it sounds good theologically. It really does. But we have a mindset, meaning many Americans, of zero-sum game. And that, and that notion of zero-sum game gets exactly divided, right. not just along racial lines, but it also gets divided along gender and all sorts of ways in which we divide ourselves from what we what mm-hmm. from each other. So I think that what we have to do, it sounds wonderful. It really does. But I think that w- how we get there of rising from the bottom here, because you say rising from the bottom, a lot of people think, oh, black people. And again, you're taking from me. I think what we got to understand that what happens, how we all lose up, lose out from a zero sum game philosophy and practice you know, in everyday life. We're talking to the Reverend Zyron Monroe and Emmett Price. So um, there's some speculation that Pope Francis may be retiring (laughs) because of this visit he's taking. But you know what really got me excited about this? You should explain what the visit thing is, right? Well, he's going to the central Italian city, L'Aquila, for a feast initiated by Pope Celestine V. He was one of the only uh, pontiffs who resigned before Pope Benedict resigned in 2013. I don't think he's going to resign. But you know what? Before I get your reaction to that, you know what I loved about this story? 
is that he has stacked the deck uh, in terms of the College of Cardinals so that um, he thinks he's got a good chance of having another um, at least non-authoritarian pope replace him because he thinks he's got like-minded cardinals. But what do you think of me? You think he's throwing in the towel here? You know what? I I, I think that, I think the brother needs to go on and sit down and uh, let 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 somebody else follow him. You know, all of this stacking the deck stuff and you know tipping tipping the vote and you know that just doesn't sound pontif pontific. You know, just. I'm I'm not feeling it. So I, so I'm hoping that he um you know gets to do the the last world tour, you know, and then we'll be waiting at the chambers to see what smoke yeah, comes out of go. the, you know, cuz I I think he's it's time for him to to, to ride on into the sunset. Mm. You think so? Listen. Oh yeah. Yeah, and listen, it can't come soon enough. Okay? And I I'll help walk him there if he needs some help or pull him there. However he wants to get there here. He needs to say that's all, folks. But again, I mean, the Senate is next year, as you know. So my, my thing is, is that, well, you know, however that turns out, good or bad, he needs to leave. Because if it's bad, he needs not to stay. If it turns out good, he needs to then leave. Like, you see what I did? Or I tried to do. But I have to say this. No matter what, I looked at uh, several polls about his favorability. And I looked at Catholic polls. I looked at, you know, the general pop- popular, you know, populist poll. No matter what, his rating holds at 56% here. So no matter what I say or think about the Pope here, uh, a lot of Catholics absolutely love him. But Irene, so, but I mean, Irene, there you have it. Compared to Benedict, I mean, you got to go back to you got to go you got to go back to John the 23rd before you get yeah. somebody that well, was as close to your. I, you know. I know, but you know what, though, what? Marjorie, anything what? is better than, than Rad, Radzinger. That's what I have to say. And this is what I've always said. I've said it several times. Or John Paul the II hell, in terms of your well, politics, right? Let me right? just say this here, the show Relativity. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, but it's hell nonetheless. I thank him. He was the consummate flip-flap, but I thank him for his years of service. And by the way, unfortunately, the four pillars of Catholic doctrine is the social good, Okay. And, the, and, and upholding the dignity of human life. The other two, Marjorie, you're going to have to figure out, but those two came to me. Yeah, I, you know, I <laughs> looked I it up and they gave me always, seven. <laughs> they, well, the four, yeah, but there, there are seven, but there's the four principal one. But my point is, is the four, the four strong ones, he didn't hold up, which is the common good for everybody and the human dignity of, of us all. And, Before, and that just... I'm sorry. Before so that, we, just bothered, that bothered me. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by where you are on Pope Francis leaving Irene. I'm sort of surprised <laughs> by you, Emmett. Could you flesh that out for 60 seconds Absolutely. before we go? Why do you think it's Absolutely. time? Absolutely. He's had a number of moments to do some interventions, um, whether it's the sexual abuse stuff well, within the church to go to the next level, there you go. whether it whether it's the person, you know, um, uh, you know, um, what is it? Removing the um, statute of limitations on, 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 you know, um, removing uh, unhealthy people from healthy parishes. Um, And I just haven't seen him do that. The whole issue about women, um, he's kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, tipped his hat at things that he was going to do, but then never did them. And then the whole notion Mm -hmm. of in this global crisis that we're in, he was one of the people who had a global platform who could have helped mm-hmm. to lean in to what health and wellness means, even, even beyond the vaccine, in terms of all the things that we're trying to wrestle with in this nation. He right. has a global pat- platform as a pope. 
And I just didn't see that come from him either. So I don't okay. have any ill will against him. Right. I just think it's time for him to go. I got it. Okay, fair and, enough. And let's not yeah. forget Ukraine, Quickly. too, his position on Ukraine. So, right. He, he, well, he was uh, refusing to take on the, the whatever, uh, what's the name of the guy who's head of the head church? Of the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah, who was obviously right. pumping up Putin kind of thing. That was... Uh, it's yeah. just time to go. You Fair know, enough. Wait, for us go. or for... Oh, you're talking about... I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just wanted to be clear. Hey, you too. It's great to talk to you as always. Be well. Thanks for having us. Happy Thank Pride. you. Yeah, you too. Indeed. The Reverend Iron Monroe is a, excuse me, syndicated religion columnist in the Boston Voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Emma G. Price III is founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music, and together... They host the All Revved Up podcast. Coming up, Boston Globe climate reporter David Abel with some really scary talk about forever chemicals and so many people's drinking water around New England. Stay tuned, New Hampshire. And yet another dire climate report uh, warning that, you know, we could be underwater here in Boston pretty fast. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. David Abel is next. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. Tomorrow we are at the Boston Public Library. We hope you join us. It's actually quite a lineup. Another week, another harrowing climate report. This one from the Greater Boston Research Advisory Group here to describe the findings and what they mean for human beings still around on the planet later in the century is David Abel. David joins us on Zoom to discuss what needs to be done to correct course and other climate stories. David, of course, reports on climate for the Boston Globe. Good to see you, David Abel. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Yeah, David, you wrote this really devastating story about thousands of people in New Hampshire may still be drinking polluted water, as the headline reads, years after the largest contamination in state his- history, apparently by this toxic uh, chemicals. And you, you talked to a woman, Carol Williams, who between 2010 and 2020, after living about two miles from the plant, was diagnosed with bladder cancer, breast cancer, and kidney cancers. Um, She was an avid runner. She's lost a kidney already. She's lost her gallbladder, and she's lost parts of her pancreas, right lung, and her breasts. So what is going on up there? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty frightening, Um, and there are many stories uh, like that. Um, And I spoke to numerous people who are suffering various um, uh, um, cancers and uh, that said, you, you can never, it's one of the most challenging things to make a correlation between someone's cancer diagnosis and exactly how they might have gotten it. But uh, over the last, for, for decades now, this plant uh, in southern New Hampshire, in Merrimack, um, uh, New Hampshire, has been disseminating through their stacks uh, massive amounts of these toxic forever chemicals. And they have uh, basically uh, uh, been dispersed through the air and 
settled on the ground, infiltrated groundwater, and have been um, found in, in drinking water wells, thousands of them. And the state of New Hampshire um, has specific standards that says that if those chemicals are above a certain amount, it's unsafe to drink. And the, the thing that we've known about this problem for a long time, but what our story focused on was that there are so many people who have no idea whether their yeah. wells might be contaminated. There are thousands of them. And the, and the company has been fighting um, with the state to about efforts to, to alert certain people and, and has disputed whether they have any responsibility to help those people try to you know, deal with, with finding a way to filter that pollution. You know, but but I took another thing away from the story in juxtaposition with another piece you wrote. The piece I was talking about was uh, Maura Healy here as attorney general suing these uh, a ton of these large manufacturers of these forever uh, uh, chemicals. That's what the state is doing here. While there was nothing to recommend that the company in New Hampshire, the sense I got and please. David, if you think I'm being unfair to them, let me know to the state. The state seemed to be saying, here's the phone number of the company. Give them a call. They'll come test your site maybe, and maybe they'll pay for it. I mean, is that not what New Hampshire seems to be doing? That is exactly what they d- that they've done in various cases, and it leaves some of these homeowners in this awful position. It's sort of a catch-22 because they don't know what the hell to do. They call the uh, one um, family I spoke with reached out to the company after getting the letter. They didn't hear back from the company for more than a month. And they only heard back from them after I, after I started asking the company about their particular case and uh, their neighbors who, who, when they received the letter decided to just pay 700 bucks to have on their own to have their water tested and their water was found to have elevated levels that exceed what the state's requirements are. And so, so is, uh, it, oh, go it, ahead. it just puts these it just puts these homeowners in a terrible situation. Terrible. Yeah, I read where there's 18 grand for a filtration system for one family if they want to get that too. So what is this? Is this live free or die run amok up there? Does Governor Sununu think this is the way his citizenry should be treated? Can't why aren't they going after this company? By well, the way, what is it called? What's the name of the company? It's the um, Saint, it's Saint Gobain. It's Saint Gobain Performance old... Plastics. Yeah, that, well, that's just one of uh, many many um, factories that they have or plants they have around the world. It's this Paris-based company, uh, this international conglomerate, and they um, they have been sued in uh, New York and Vermont for very similar kinds of pollution with toxic chemicals uh, that they've been disseminating from uh, a number of their plants. And, and just to say that this is not just a, um, a New Hampshire issue. This is an issue that we have all over this country and all over the world, frankly. What, including um, in Massachusetts, drinking water concerns, right? Including yeah, but- in Massachusetts. I mean, there, uh, the last I heard from the state a few weeks ago when I was asking about another case um, which was just found in Westminster, uh, where they found some of the highest concentrations of these chemicals ever found anywhere uh, in oh, Massachusetts. They, there are something like 84 towns or municipalities in the state of Massachusetts where these PFAS chemicals, these toxic chemicals, are 
um, found to be exceeding the state's requirements um, for safe drinking water. And it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of places around the Commonwealth, Easton and Holbrook and Randolph and... and um, Wayland, Wellesley. Yeah, um, Wayland and Wellesley are pretty high-rent high, uh, high rent districts, too. This is, this is in, in wealthy towns and not wealthy towns. It's, it's in, in many, many places, and there are a variety of sources. But the case in New Hampshire is, uh, is just a, a specific example of one, one factory, one plant, basically disseminating all of these chemicals in such a wide area. There's, the company has acknowledged its responsibility for this 65-square-mile area um, where their stacks reach. But uh, a lot of folks believe that the pollution is, um, you know, is, has contaminated wells well beyond that. Before we go from bad news to bad news, which is apparently <laughs> what we do on this show, is what is it if an individual in one of the communities that you're mentioning is nervous and wants their know if their water is safe to drink, uh, wants it tested, how, what does he or she do to make that happen? Well, in some cases, so the state has, uh, I think, um, a list of potential uh, folks that, it, and this is the case in New Hampshire as well, uh, where folks can call to get private testing. The state, um, in certain cases, will make testing available uh, for free. And in New Hampshire, in this particular case, um, there is the agreement that, that the settlement agreement that the state of New Hampshire reached with uh, the company, St. Cobain, some years ago, obliges the company to pay for, um, for testing. And unfortunately, though, there are thousands of cases where the company has refused to do that. Because they say um, it's not our problem or it's outside our jurisdiction or... They're pointing the finger when I ask them about this. Uh, and, I, you know, they, they said, well, in some cases, they're, they're people who they just haven't heard back from. I think there was more than 1,200 um, cases involving... Sorry about that. There's okay. That's okay. In the background here. Um, there are, um, uh, in some cases, 1,200 people who they just haven't been able to reach. And I asked, well, why aren't you just knocking on their doors? And they said, you know, well, we're just trying to do everything we can. And what that involves is essentially sending a letter. And if they don't hear back, maybe sending another letter. Great. So, uh, David Abel, uh, uh, let's come back to Massachusetts. I introduced you by talking about this, uh, whatever the name of this, research, uh, Boston, Greater Boston Research Advisory Group, yet another nightmare about where we're going to be in a number of years. Can you give us the short version of what they're projecting? And then I have a strategic question for you. So this is the second report that uh, this uh, outfit out of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, has produced. Uh, and here are just a few data points. Um, they find that um, by the end of the century, average temperatures in Boston could, uh, or in, in the metropolitan area, this, this report covers about 100 towns around the Boston area, um, that average temperatures could increase as much as 10 degrees above 2,000 levels. And, um, and this is in in the worst case scenario, uh, seas could rise as much as 15 feet 
Um, and at over the same time, intense precipitation could increase by 30% and flooding from rivers could surge by 70%. Now, those are uh, generally the worst case scenario. And that's, a, that's if we see a lot of melting of glaciers, a lot more like maximum worst case. But the best case melting. is not so hot either. The but- best case. And well, so if so, the most likely scenario for, let's say, um, sea level rise is roughly about three and a half feet by the end of the century. Um, and okay. Can I ask you a question? Yes, please. Okay. The Institute of Contemporary Art, right? They're built on the water down there in the seaport district, and they have a big porch that goes out into the water. There'll be no more high diving events well, at the no, uh, I ICA, if that's your events. question. I, I think there's so much confusion about what this means. What does 15 feet of sea level rise mean? Does it mean, or you explain. So 15 feet of sea level rise. So right now we have an average tide is like nine or 10 feet yep. on a, on a, um, on an astronomical high tide when there's something called a king tide, tides can rise as much as 12 feet. And when that happens, you see flooding along long wharf, you see flooding along the banks of fan pier and, and elsewhere. If you add 15 feet on top of that, and that's not including storm surge, you will have an entirely sunken, inundated seaport. You will have most of downtown Boston will be underwater. If, it, if it's 15 feet, the city is not going to have um, uh, much of a downtown left. You know, and by you the way, somebody, about, excuse, excuse me, me, somebody should make a documentary about that, David, don't you think? Yes, he has. Yes, he has. But you talked about (laughs) Logan Airport being underwater and major hospitals being underwater too. So when we're all, uh, you know, when we're saved from drowning at the last second, the hospitals will be shut down. So somebody better know how to do CPR at the scene. But but let's not talk about fifteen feet because fifteen feet is the absolute worst scenario. But but three and a half feet to or or the the general range uh, of likely scenarios. Uh, if we don't really do anything substantially about carbon emissions, and again, which we're not, emissions, you know, the the United Nations says that they should come down by roughly half of 2000 levels by the end of this decade. And we're on track to increase them by roughly 14 percent by the end of this decade. Now, if we continue on that trajectory, we're seeing four to seven feet, most likely of sea level rise. And that is going to be similarly catastrophic. Um, 15 feet is just, it's hard to even think about. Seven feet is, is, is something that I don't think the city, without building this a massive barrier from Winthrop to Hull, is really going to be able to deal with. I think they just have to raise the seaport. I, I want to get to your <laughs> film in about two seconds. By 50 but excuse feet. me, but I want to add to this. Uh, we've talked about this on, I think we talked about it with Bill McKibben a couple of weeks ago, but with somebody uh, pending before the Supreme Court, which is going to come down any oh, day, God. is likely, speaking of carbon emissions, is likely a decision that is going to scale back, if not gut, the ability of the EPA. Uh, to regulate those emissions. Then next year, there's a case that deals with the the breadth of the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. So, I mean, there are, are, it's not just abortion and guns that 
nightmares on the horizon. You've done a piece called Sea Ride. Well, you're in the process of doing yet another film. Oh, it and looks you've really great. done great stuff. Here's just a really short clip from this project in the works, this documentary in the works by David Abel. 80 years from now, a lot of the seaport is just going to be underwater, not just during high tides or extreme high tides or during storms. But all the time. You know, Marjorie and I just saw the clip. The one line that will stay with me is it shouldn't be called the Innovation District. Yeah. It should be called the Inundation, inundation district. district. The thing that I don't understand at all, and I, I'm embarrassed, I worry when I ask a question like this that sounds so naive, developers have to know uh, what they're getting into. Maybe they didn't know at the beginning of the seaport when there was this huge rush. Does the And they're still building. Does the average... Do they not know what you're about to expose in this film that they're about to be underwater in the damn seaport? They've already made their money, Jim, so they don't care. That no, I'm serious. Wait, Jim, you know the answer to this question, which is that it they're not thinking in the long term. It's not going to be their problem because well, that's what said, yeah. they're they're going to sell these buildings. Exactly. And that's already happened. So you see So who's the dope that's going to buy the buildings, David Abel? I mean, really? <laughs> Look at those high rises down there. They're like three and four million dollars. I think these people have just bought these high, in those apartment buildings down there. That well, are they better buy high up. So, well, I think they better sell. So we're both interrupting you. Give us your. What's the premise of? Uh, I know you've touched on it here. What's the premise of this film you're working on, Sea Rise? What, what is it? Well, I think you touched on it with your question, which is ultimately who is left holding the bag? Who is left? footing the bill for the uh, 20-plus billion-dollar investment that the state and the city has made in creating an entirely new neighborhood at sea level, on on landfill, landfill. on the coast, and arguably, because of the way gravity works, in the bullseye of rising sea levels. Boston is is expected to have a 25% greater amount of sea level rise than most other places than other places on the planet. And so the ultimate question that I hope to raise with this film is who's going to foot the expense for protecting the seaport? And then who's going to foot the expense when the ultimate storm comes? If we had a storm like Sandy hit only a few hours earlier, much of that entire area would have been underwater. And so the question is, is it residents in Roxbury, in Dorchester, in Jamaica Plain that are going to be paying for this entirely new urban district to be built right there? And what's different and what's unique and has fascinated me about this is that unlike a lot of other places on the planet, whether it's Miami Beach or whether it's Jakarta that we know are susceptible to rising sea levels, this place was built over the last decade when we (laughs) were well aware of these dangers and in a city that probably has more climate scientists per capita than just about anywhere else on the planet. Well, you you know, know all I can say is thank God climate change is a hoax because if it wasn't, (laughs) we would be really screwed. David, David, it's not just that it was built so recently. It was built so fast. I mean, I remember going down to the federal courthouse, which of course is down in the, you know, every trial you covered was down at the federal courthouse. That was all there was except for parking lots. Parking lots. lots. 
every time you went, there's like another three huge high rises in like six months. It was built like in a nanosecond. But you're speaking as if it's the past tense. It's still you're going exactly up. Right. You're right. Yeah. Just, you're right. Two weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago, the governor was down at the seaport helping inaugurate the opening of new offices by Amazon. That. He swam she... back to the state house. Do you know that, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> this is like, when's the film coming out, David Abel? Um, I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but we're still very much in production. We're still working on it and uh, hoping uh, by the end of the year it should be done. Well, I know that the, well, I don't know what you call that. It's not really a trailer, but the excerpt you were kind enough to share with us is not available to the public yet, right. but it looks Margie and I called each other after we saw it this morning. It looks, looks really I think terrific. We all need to get some flippers <laughs> to be ready. It's like <laughs> we are so doomed. So, David, it's a pl- well. It's not a pleasure, actually. It yeah. is good to talk to you Great as always. Thank you David. so much. By the really way, we're, we're getting. We, we just got an email from someone from Westminster. Said that the town has told them nothing about their problems with contamination in the wells. Nothing. Stay tuned. Uh, I'm working on a story about that. Great. great. Stay tuned. David, it's great okay. to see you. Be well. Oh, Westminster. Did I say Westminster? Yeah, you did say oh, Westminster. Westminster. Okay, yes. just make sure I didn't goof Take up. care, David. David Abel, thank okay. you so much. Be great well. stuff. All right. Uh, David Abel is a climate reporter for the Boston Globe. And like I said, we need the flippers and we need the face masks. We need the little masks. You just make that joke about when the tunnel collapsed and I need the flippers when the water came down on the tunnel. But now I think we're going to need them right up to Fenway Park, if not further. Anyway, we're going to open the lines in just a second. A little change of pace here. Asking you if swearing makes you happier. Please weigh in next. You have to be PG about it. We can't have any swears on the air, but we want to know if you feel good when you swear like a trooper. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Mardrigan. Tomorrow we're at the library. You know, we should have to provide free therapy with this show. I'll tell you. But we're going to totally change the mood. And actually, we're going to change the mood even before we get to the topic. Marjorie, here's a yes. quiz. I know you hate quizzes. We're doing okay, this whether do you like quizzes. it or not. All right, go what ahead. What is today the 49th anniversary of? Quickly, what is it? Oh, God, I have no idea, Okay, Jim. it is the 49th anniversary of this. This. He is moving like a tremendous oh. machine. Oh, my God. Secretary 49th anniversary. of I knew that would make sticks. her smile. God, I should have known that. Here too. is more good news, by the way. In the Atlantic today, our friend Arthur C. Brooks writes, yes. that not only have Americans become more profane in their speech and that swearing might actually be good for you, no Whatever. I can't I can't say it. Arthur will be back on our show in July. But for now, we're opening the lines to hear from you. Have you found yourself swearing more since the pandemic began at home, at work? Are the rules changing about where and when it's okay to use profanity? And frankly, should they change? 877-301-8970. You can call us through Texas. And again, don't be cute. It's going to get Marjorie and me fired if it turns out that you... Like, uh, don't use a, a profane word. But let me just say, speaking of that, I, I my coworker, who I'm incredibly fond of, everybody knows, swears like a drunken sailor. So how do you feel <laughs> about this uh, Arthur's point that in the appropriate circumstances, he said the timing's got to be right, the setting's got to be right, you know, all this sort of stuff. How do you – do you subscribe to this notion? Because I have to – be in a moment of candor, you swear a lot more than when I met you 
20 some years it's, ago. Well, Margaret. that's because it's all your fault, Jim. Every other word out of your mouth. You know what I mean? Not on the air. Not, not on the not, air. Not, not I don't think air. even nope. once in 25 years. Oh, I have made a mistake on the air. And thank goodness our engineer saved my life. Yeah. I said a bad So word where on are you air. on this? You're not, you, you use it, but you're not crazy about profanity. Well, you I, think you it's know, like it's, a cheap thing when people no, can't. It's, well, it, it, some people do argue it's a cheap thing if you can't think of something else. But I think, you know, I, I swear a lot if I, if I'm, if something really frustrates me. I mean, I don't want to and swear. it feels at good, doesn't it? When you, of course. Yes. Well, they even say that that if you swear, they, like if Arthur you have does. to, Arthur does in this piece that he wrote. But, but apparently, scientists have, oh, have, have confirmed the fact. That if say you you had to stick your hand in a freezing vat of water, mm-hmm. people that swear while they got their hand in there uh, feel better than if they didn't swear. Or people that are in extremis, I think maybe childbirth. All the jokes about women swearing at their husband during childbirth. You know mm-hmm. that they may feel better about that. So I I think it was. Um, it depends on where you are. You know, you're never going to, I mean, you go visit the maid notch, you're not going to swear. Well, your kids are little, you're not going to go swear. But it's amazing how you can restrain your swears when your kids are around. And then you get to work and you're swearing like a trooper. And I blame uh, going to work at a place at Boston Herald where everybody swore so much and smoked so much, smoking cigars actually, that I figured to be one of the guys I had to start smoking and swearing, Jim. Well, yeah, but uh, I am uh, Arthur. One of our, we'll discuss this with him when he's on in July. But one of his things that makes you feel better, and sometimes that even makes you happy, I totally subscribe to. And if it's just if it's you know cheap and it hurts somebody, obviously that's not the goal. But in normal speech, I and you know what I find really weird. Obviously, we can't swear on the radio, as I'm sure you mm-hmm. all know. Uh, you can't swear on broadcast TV. You sure as hell can swear on cable TV. Oh, yeah, I think or serious dist- radio. Don't you think it is phony? I mean, most people, almost everybody I know, swears at least a little in normal conversation. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you become a different person. But, you know, I don't like it. I know you don't like it, but you do it. I know. I'm a hypocrite on many fronts. Okay, fine. Reverend Jim is going to start it. He's in, well, Reverend Jim. I Reverend hope you Jim, wouldn't. you better not be swearing. Reverend Jim. Jim in Plymouth, welcome to the show. What's up? Uh, both my wife and I are, um, are ministers, and um, we we drop the F bomb on a regular basis. Uh, as, I mean, you know, we, we we go through it, but what we don't like and what we really can't stand, what really bothers me, is um, we don't use the Lord's name in vain. And um, okay, that would be GD. Uh, that that swear GD is that what you're talking yeah, about? That that one. Okay, and blank. A, a sake. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That uh, was my father's favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, the, uh, but that, that's using the, uh, using the, uh, uh, the Lord's name in vain is only Christians. A Jew would never do that. And, uh, and, I, um, and a Muslim would never do that. Um, it, it just, it's unique to the Christians, and it makes me crazy. Yeah, but can we get back to your first statement, if I may, Reverend? You say that you and your wife, who's also a minister, are dropping the f bomb all the time. Is that your? Is that your thing? That's what he said. And, and what is that about? What? What is? What? Heard the beat. Okay. I mean, you're my kind of Reverend. Thank you very much for joining us. We we appreciate it. So, I mean, he has limits, but certain areas he feels he and his wife feel it's appropriate. It's fine. Remember Mitt, Mitt Romney. H-E-double, H-E double hell, hockey, hockey sticks. sticks. Yeah. Wouldn't say hell. Yeah. I mean, hell isn't even on the on the no. boards as a swear, is it? I mean, there's no. a whole degree of swears, right? And that is kind of a very minor one. Let's oh, go- hell. 
I mean, you can even say that. In the well, it doesn't even get I mean, but but that's obviously he's a very religious guy, and it's part of the religious deal, right? I mean, isn't that what I it is? I guess so. You know, I don't. I, I I would guess he doesn't swear at all if he's H-E oh no 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 no. You didn't hear read the whole thing. He said he says H E double hockey sticks, but he drops the f bomb all the time with Ann. Ann and Mitt Romney. You kidding me? Let's go to Carol. They're notorious. I tell you, they could really do it up. Carol. Carolyn, New Hampshire, on Boston Public Radio. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Thank I you. Um, had to call yeah. because recently I was on vacation abroad and I had pneumonia. And uh-huh. I never usually swear. And I was dropping F like it was oh. water falling from the sky. Every, I mean, I was just so unhealthy and unhappy. But in my real life, I'm back to normal. And um, I have to say, it depends on the, there are degrees of swear words. H-E double toothpicks is not even a swear word. It's no. a place. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. But I do think, in general, I did not swear around my son. My husband and I really don't swear. I don't, I never did around my grandchildren. And in general, I'm opposed to it on a real basic level that if you are reduced to not thinking of a better word to use, and you, you, I think I'm really talking about the F bomb. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's so commonly used. But, Carol, Carol, what, when you have an incredibly stressful moment, when you feel like your head is going to pop off, isn't it? I, I mean this sincerely. I'm so where Arthur Brooks is on this. It is so. Uh, uh, what's the word? It, it's so uh, uh, cathartic. cathartic, at least for me, yeah. to scream it at the top of my lungs. You don't. What do you substitute for that? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think I usually have any reason to scream at the top of my lungs. Well, I do every day. So that's the, that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, Carol, a lot of people do. Yeah. I, 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 I we we respect your position, and I'm really glad you called because we wanted to make sure we now, did hear from somebody who. Sh- has your worldview. We appreciate it. An astute texter who wants to know, didn't Jim Browdy swear on national oh, TV totally during this. the marathon manhunt coverage, Jim? I will. Since you, uh, uh, I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, I was at NECN. Yep. Uh, we had the only reporters at Franklin Street where the younger Sir and I was hiding in the boat. I think so. I don't remember. We were about in water town to somewhere. close in, and a young reporter who's now a big shot in town, I don't want to say her name because it wasn't her fault, motions to me that I should come off the anchor desk at the critical moment. And I was so angry, I forgot to turn my mic off. And as we're entering, as I'm entering the studio, the head of the website says, Well, what do we know? And I say, We don't know blank about anything. And <laughs> literally, and I'm not making up this story. About a minute earlier, Brian Williams, then the anchor at NBC, had thrown to local affiliate oh, NECN, God. and the first words they hear <laughs> is this disembodied voice saying, we don't know blank about anything, at which point Brian Williams says, well, we'll take it back to NBC <laughs> at this particular. So the, the answer is yes, I did. I forgot about that. I haven't on the radio, to my knowledge, but I did once on TV. Listen to this. Marianne from Franklin, who says she's 58 years old, 59 years old, used to be offended by the F word. I never understood why anybody used it. And now, she says, it's a part of my vocabulary. She said it began when Trump became the president. That's a good she- one. 
Yeah. This is now, good. I'm sorry, God. I'm and sorry. I was, somebody else said, and this is this is um, on my work days at home. I spend the whole day yelling and cursing. Oh no, this that that's not the one. Well, that's a good one too. But the one that the person said that they swear all the time um, uh, at work, but they don't do it um, at home. Let's go to Robert in Winchester. I think he's got a good one too. Hey, hey, Robert, welcome. Hi, Tim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey. <clears throat> yeah, I'm 65 years old, yeah. and I never used a, a swear word. Until my therapist recommended it when I was thirty years old. <laughs> and what did he or she? Why did he or she recommend it to you, Robert? I I was um, I was I was very inhibited mm-hmm. uh, in expressing my opinions. Yep. Uh, and when people would offend me or hurt me, you know that sort of thing. And even if I hit my thumb on it with a with a hammer. <laughs> so he he said, "Well, I think." On your next session, you need to let me know if you know that you practice what I said. <laughs> so I did, and it really is helpful. I don't use them very often, and I never use derogatory language uh, towards people. Yeah, uh, but you know, oh. I will say certain words when I'm disgusted with you know Trump or something else or something that someone says that I think is really ridiculous. Me, Robert you know, just said I don't direct it at people, just Trump. Donald Trump. Is yeah. what Ro- you know, Robert, by the way, <laughs> we ignore, and that's a great call, thank you. Arthur C. Brooks in his piece makes the point that you make. Obviously, directed at people, abusive is worse. Yeah. totally, obviously not appropriate or L- acceptable. Listen yeah. to this. We named our puppy Tuck. Yeah. And she Tuck. does all those cute puppy things I'm constantly saying what the f tuck it rhymes and flows almost too much you know you cliff can see what that happens all the time cliff from winchester where you can't drink the water according mm-hmm. to was it winchester or was winchester, winchester right? says i think it's this is what we we're trying to say before but he says it better is a sign of weakness because of lack of command of the english language a lot of people who don't like say that, swearing yeah. say it's because you're not together enough to say something that's not profane and so well, don't hide behind Helen from Marshfield says profanity is 80% of her vocabulary always has been makes me feel great one of the reasons I love Ozark is they raise swearing to a magnificent level boy do they ever yeah they really I mean by the way that's what I was saying before the absurdity so you turn on Ozark was that on HBO or Netflix I can't remember I don't know wherever it was Netflix thank you John Uh, you turn on Netflix and they can swear up a storm and you turn back to NBC or something and they can't. I mean, isn't that distinction absurd? I mean, isn't that well? Absurd? That's one of the reasons Howard Stern went to went to. That uh, is exactly right. Serious you know, XM. Yeah, the great interviewer Howard Stern. Not that he's my favorite necessarily, but he can swear a lot on Sirius XM, and he couldn't do it in his regular regular show. Let's go, Let's to, go Al- to. I'm sorry. Sorry, Jim. You go. Ellen in the car. Thanks. Hey, Ellen. Hi. I was just going to say a, a great vocabulary word. It's all semantics. Everything kind of means the same. You can say one word, but you can't say the other. Yeah. You mean you mean it's you just it's mean? just a and, word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when it's directed at somebody, like I would never say the B word, the N word, because I'm like it is it it's aggressive, it's violent. But what's the difference between you know, words. one word and another. I mean, and I, well, exactly. George Carlin, fabulous. Just had like this thing on um, HBO or Showtime where he like kind of wrote it down. I'm like, 
what's the difference between X-Men or, you know? Yeah. It's just, I don't want to say it because Did I'm he, trying to Well, the, I mean, myself. you know the answer to your question. It's history and context, uh, uh, obviously. So in on one level, it makes no sense that there are those kinds of distinctions. But then when you look at the history of how a word is used and in what context, it is. So I sort of agree with you, but I think we both agree that certain things are beyond the pale. So, Ellen, thank you for the call, though. Appreciate you, it. You know what's interesting, too, that the swear words, when we use them, have got nothing to do with what the swear words actually mean, right? When you say, oh, you're not talking about the actual, what the word, that, you know what I mean? Yeah, did you say, someone just texted, I haven't seen this yet. I love Julia Child. I mean, who doesn't love Julia Child? And love her even more after watching the HBO Max special in which both she and Paul dropped the F-bombs on more than one occasion. <laughs> Was she allegedly an F-bomb dropper, Julia Child? I don't Julia know, Child? but I didn't see it. I listened to it on the radio when I was driving home from the Cape, and I thought it was great. Yeah, oh, I've got great. to watch it. It was really good. It was really good. And in the car, thank you for calling. Hey, Ann. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, about two years ago, I listened to the audiobook of Swearing is Good to You by Emma Burns. Oh, that's oh. Good. British, brilliant. Um, it's funny, it's informative, and it, it goes into, you know, why swearing is good for you, how, you know, and reasons people do it, and I highly recommend it. We appreciate the recommendation. Thank you much for the call. Okay, Jim Browdy, I believe that we are done for the day. I believe we are done for the day. Actually, before we're done for the day, can I just say one thing? A bunch Certainly. of people have reached out to us saying we were promoting last week, or I was, that Jeff Deal, one of the two Republicans running for the Democratic nomination for governor, uh, was supposed to be here today. He was. He canceled, saying that he'd see us after the primary. And uh, I, I just have to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Marjorie, I don't think there is, in the 25 years we've been on the air, a Republican or Democrat for a major state office who we invited on the show uh, if he or she had a contest in a primary who has ever uh, uh, turned down an invitation after accepting it. So we've had a long relationship with Jeff, the representative, and I thought a good one. Uh, but I just want you to know we did not cancel uh, Mr. Deal. Mr. Deal canceled us and said he'll see us after the primary. I guess he assumes he's going to win. And by the way, Chris Doty, who's his opponent, was uh, with us at the library last week. So that's that. Okay. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I hope you can tune in tomorrow. If you can't get enough of us, we have a podcast, Boston Public Radio. You can get that 24-7. Tomorrow at the library, we're going to be back again. We're so happy. Uh, we're going to be joined by Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden, our food writer Corby Cummer, John Rosenthal from Stop Handgun Violence. He is a machine full of statistics and numbers about uh, the ever-rising and ever-worsening gun crisis in America. Former White House Communications Director David Gurdon, who's Gergen, who's worked for four presidents and has a great new book. And the one and only Red Shades, the local hip-hop artist, he's going to play for she. us. She, she, God, excuse me. She is going to play for us uh, at the Boston Public Library. I want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber. Additional support from Gia Orsino. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. And our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. Are you on TV tonight, Jim? No, I'm not. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a fine show. I assume it's something in anticipation of January 6th. I just want to say for those who are concerned, Tomorrow is the 49th anniversary plus one day 
a secretary <laughs> win in Belmont. So our intention is to play that sound. Absolutely. Like a tremendous exactly. Our hope is to play that yeah. okay. at least once per segment. You know, We're out people, of time, Marjorie. People, if they haven't, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but it's a feel-good thing. Secretariat, if you haven't seen okay. it, you've got to watch it with the okay. kids. You'll really like Moving it. Moving like a fine machine. No, uh, a tremendous machine, Jim. Whatever Tremendous it is. machine. Me. Uh, Marjorie Egan, it was yes. nice to see you. I've missed nice you. Nice to see you too, Jim. Uh, I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you can tune in tomorrow and have a great day.